Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing. This is widescreen podcasting and the place to get all of your ball all of the time. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles. Thank you all for downloading. I hope you're all well, safe and sound. Today, folks, I'm very excited indeed, as quite frankly, this episode turned out far better than either I or my guest ever could have reasonably hoped. And, of course, I'd say that... But seriously, if I'd have done this episode before my 117th episode spectacular, this episode certainly would have had its own shout-out and been ranked amongst my very faves. Yes, everyone, today I have the unequivocal pleasure of speaking with Andrew Dixon from the Andrew Dixon YouTube channel. Funny how that works. And if you don't know who he is, well, you fucking better should, because he is one of the very best Beatles, solo Beatles and vinyl collection-based YouTube channels out there on the interwebs. He covers everything in far more detail than I ever wish I could cover on this show myself. And, like friend of the show Andy, another Andy Andrew from YouTube, funnily enough, Mr. Dixon's own Beatle merch, vinyl, and collectibles collection is enough to make me weep, both with joy and sorrow. But seriously, he was an utter joy to have on the show. I really think we... But seriously, he was an utter joy to have on the show. I'd like to think he felt the same. I can't wait to have him back on ASAP, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation half as much as I had being a part of it. Not only that, though, folks, Andrew will also be kindly hosting this same episode on his YouTube page. Yes, folks, this episode will be available in more than one format. And speaking of formats, you know how in the way that Paul might put a different song, track listing, remix or edit onto the CD or the cassette just to ensure that you buy slash listen to both? Well, I've taken a bit of inspiration from that and I've done the very same. I have made sure that the edits that both me and Andrew will be using are indeed slightly different. A few minutes here and there have and have not been left in with each edit and each of these episodes, whether it's on the podcast or the YouTube channel, will have a unique intro from myself at the start. So if you want to hear everything both I and Andrew have to offer, then you will certainly need to go and check out Andrew's YouTube page. Links all down below. Right, folks, let's just crack on with this. This was another one I had so much fun with in the edit. I only had to cut out the most rudimentary things as well as some juicy bits to make you go and check out Andrew's channel. And yes, everyone, we did indeed spend over three hours talking about this topic today. But before we get into any of that, we have to, as always, crack on with the housekeeping. So what do we have in terms of news today? Not all that much. I mean, how much do you want me to talk about a girl being photobombed by Paul McCartney on TikTok? Yeah, that's not really newsworthy, is it? Though, if you ask all the other major news publications, they might disagree. The only thing, really, that 
caught my eye this time was Mary McCartney's new TV show and the fact that that is looming over us. It's called Mary McCartney Serves It Up and she has begun the promotional tour machine to advertise it. More power to her. And rest assured, we will definitely be covering this in some form here on the podcast. I'm always fascinated by the McCartney's enduring vegetarian and vegan activism, even if I myself am a shameless dirty carnivore. I might even review this series as part of my oft-delayed Linda McCartney food episode that I am dying to do. Funnily enough, Mary McCartney's husband, Simon Aboud, the man who directed the For You video, is also one of my dream guests, though I have a sneaking suspicion, well, not sneaking suspicion, it's pretty much fucking obvious, that coming on this podcast and discussing his career with me is one of the last fucking things he would ever want to do, and I do not blame him. Don't worry, Simon. Anyway, to get in contact with the show, please email me at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I want to hear anything there is to do with you and Macca. I want to hear your Paul McCartney stories. If there are any more reviews of McCartney 3 left, I want to hear them. And by golly, do I ever want at least one parenting, parental-based McCartney anecdote from one of you? Yes, I know I said it offhand originally the first time, but one of you can at least fulfil this request of me. One story to do with your parents' or your experience of parenting and somehow related to Paul McCartney. I know one of you can do it, folks. Anyway, we do indeed have one email to read out today on the show, and it is from one of our OG Patreon patrons, Tony Vosile, a.k.a. The Chap, who kindly sent me a shite load of McCartney merch on his own dollar. Yeah, that Tony Vosile. And his email reads as thus... Dear Sam, you have recently inspired me to get my ideas, thoughts and opinions out in the open. Your show, Paul or Nothing, lit a fire and desire inside me to also start sharing, just in a different way. As a result, I now do a chef's cooking slash entertainment based programme. Yeah, you might need a few points before attempting this one, but it's all in good fun. I've produced 19 videos so far, and I think, again... It was your fantastic show that gave me the motivation to do it, as well as my voices and characters. I'm awfully sorry, Tony. He continues, However, this is not all. I've started doing something like you do, but I should have been there years ago before I missed the ship. A few months ago, what started as a quick catch-up led to a full review of McCartney 1. I continued this setup right through Band on the Run and my review of Venus and Mars. Maybe you could give it a look. I do it myself to keep sane, and my goal is to catch up with you. Album-wise, at least. Album-wise, at least. I was driving to work and hearing every second of your show, and it always left me with a reason to fight on every day. Seize the day, Tony Vosal, OG. I mean, Tony, thank you very much for that for that email. I can't give you any more thanks than I already have, I don't think. You know, you are known as the OG for a good reason. But folks, if by any chance you are interested in TV, the OG's cooking show, then links are down below. Thank you as always, Tony. Your copy of Hot Hits and Cold Cuts is listened to every day. 
and those t-shirts that I'm sure you were hoping would be in some sort of uh, frame or sealed mylar bag in my bedroom are in fact worn every day lovingly so yeah follow us on twitter at mccartney pod that's the best way to keep up to date every day with all of my random little musings and to reiterate the fact that you can indeed get in contact with me on this twitter very quickly and you know i do read everything you send in I wanted to highlight another one of our regular correspondents, Warren Butson, a name you should have heard many times in the housekeeping segments here before. And he skipped the emailing charade altogether and he's gone right into direct messaging me. His penultimate one read, Just listen to the covers episode. You were so razor sharp with observation and wit, but the other dude was a radio disaster. Sam, you should have been the UK's Howard Stern style DJ, mate. Put your best bits together and send it out to a radio station. What's to lose? Well, Warren, my oh my, I am indeed about to blush. Thank you so much, dude. Maybe I will send out my stuff to a radio station one day, but I would never want to be a part of a radio network that would have me as a broadcaster, you know? And I do have to defend my guest for that episode, John Davenport, as not only do I intend to have him back on the podcast quite regularly to discuss covers, but... You know, there are many types of broadcasters out there. You know, just because he isn't as animated or over the top or rude or ridiculously fake as me doesn't mean he's any less legitimate as a broadcaster or podcasting presence. Hopefully, Warren, I'll be able to convince you otherwise when I have him back on the show. And just for you, I'll make sure to have him back on even sooner than I planned. Anyway, back to the more self-aggrandizing content. I did get another message from Warren relating to the Tripping the Life Fantastic double build we had with Dylan Seavey and it read as thus really great pod with that dude I'm sure he's referring to Dylan he had so much to contribute and his insights were really good and he can give Bants as good as he gets Tripping the Life Fantastic is a bit of a challenge when hearing the Wings and Beatles songs but the Flowers in the Dirt stuff is great and I think even better than the overproduced album versions. It's also hard for me, as when you were there, you didn't analyse the vocals as much as you do when listening to the CD. Certainly, we didn't have an issue with the sampled strings and brass. I mean, to my ears, they were way better than what else was around at the time. Anyway, thanks for those episodes. It really works with the two of you. Great energy, WB. Again, Warren, like Tony, my thanks is always continual, you know, thank you so much for always contributing to this show, whether publicly or privately. I'm so sorry I once again displayed your private messages rather publicly, but since they're just so nice, I cannot help myself. Of course, I'm really glad that you enjoyed the quote-unquote bants that me and Dylan went through. I had a really great time putting those episodes together, and again, rather like the episode you're about to listen to shortly, those Tripping the Life Fantastic episodes are some of my favourites as well, though... Am I a bit like Paul now at this point? You know, whatever my latest episode is, is my favourite. Who knows? But anyway, let's crack on. You can also check out the blog, the sister blog that we have here at Paul or Nothing, which is paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com, where you can check out all sorts of bonus Paul McCartney content. So if you want to get your extra fix that you haven't had enough today, check out paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, simply by typing in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. 
Also, if you want to help out the show right now in a really quick way that costs you nothing, please leave a five-star review for the show on whatever podcasting app or platform you are listening to, maybe even a thumbs up. It always helps us out with the exposure in those algorithms. You know again how that all works. And finally, if you've been enjoying the show, folks, if you've been enjoying all of the content I've been putting out for you over the last half decade and you know you'd like to say thanks for all of that maybe consider joining our patreon family yes patreon is the platform again as i'm sure you know how you the public can support independent content creators such as myself of course there are no ads on paul on a thing if you'd like me to do more if you'd like to see the show grow if you'd like to just help keep the lights running and maybe even just chuck a few dollars at my face down the internet every month just because you really like the show hey please consider joining our wonderful Patreon family. The family including people such as Teresa Breda, Stephanie Miller, Louis DiLonardo, Stuart Cook, Cheryl McCoy, Katrina S, Sam Hode, Anastasia P, Robert Carabelli, my main man Matt Phillips, who's been on the show several times now, and our two corresponders today, Tony Vosal and Warren Butson. Thank you very much, folks. I'm so sorry to have to give you these plugs once again, but... You know, it's a living. Though it is all over now, do not worry. And it is time for me to cut right to the live feed. Yes, folks, this is, in full, my entire conversation with Andrew Dixon from the Andrew Dixon YouTube channel on YouTube. Let's just do this thing. One, two, three. Let's cut to me. shouting at a dog to be quiet (laughs) and now it's time for me to bring on today's guest joining me folks is another member of the distant far-flung community of beetle fans of course being the youtubers my guest today is well in possession of an incredibly enviable youtube channel that covers all manner of beetle music solo beetle music and even occasionally folks as hard as it is to comprehend other types of music too He's incredibly well-read and knows a metric shit-ton of Beatle-based trivia, McCartney facts, and how to collect vinyl. However, folks, this is his very first podcast ever, and despite being someone who regularly puts his face on the internet, he confessed to me privately that he's a little bit nervous. So, everyone, please join me in a raucous welcome for Andrew Dixon of the Andrew Dixon YouTube channel. Welcome, my friend. How are you doing? Thank you very much, Sam. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, I'm... uh... I'm, I'm looking forward to this. It's, uh, I'm, I'm definitely out of my comfort zone a little, but I'm, uh, I'm definitely looking forward to it, especially the topic that we've chosen to talk about should be fun. Now, I'm glad to finally have you on, on here, man. I've been binging your channel over the last few weeks, and I can't wait to cruelly exploit your reach and audience to broaden my own, you know? It's all well, networking. It'll, 
feel feel free you exploit away it's fine with me yeah we are i'm sure i can sell them some supplements as well along the way (laughs) now i had so much fun watching your live stream last night despite how often i had to stick my fingers in my ears because you were talking about something that we might be covering today (laughs) but rather heartbreakingly at the same time there was the worst timing ever lawrence juba was also doing his own live stream obviously yes lawrence on the show before and i got to hear you talk Whilst he was like playing Maisie, it was great. It was just this ah. quite quite surreal moment, you know. Well, I saw you put the message. You, you put a message up in the live chat saying that uh, Lawrence Juba's doing a, a, a live chat as well now, and, and I'm torn. And and I oh, wanted well. to read it out. I thought there's no way I'm reading that out because you know I, I would lose seventy <laughs> percent of my audience in one go. So I thought I'm just going to oh. sort of bypass that and hope that people haven't seen you mention that. <laughs> Next time I'm just going to say I'm doing a live stream. We'll see what happens, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I'll read that out, no problem. Also, just <laughs> got to say, I loved seeing that you were drinking whiskey. I've mentioned your name to the Blotto Beatles podcast. Expect a message off them in the future. Ah, interesting. Yes, I had a, I had a cheeky little single malt on the live stream last night. I'm not sure it helped my throat, to be honest, but um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm on tea out of my yellow submarine mug at the moment. And I'm swigging directly from the bottle, a 1.5-litre bottle of Coke. So, you know, keeping it nice and Drop healthy. Stuff. Brilliant. <laughs> Now, I'd like to start these interviews off with the most British question ever. So, okay. where, are you, where are you calling from? What's the weather like? I'm in uh, Leeds in West Yorkshire, and it has been utterly miserable all day. It's been, it's, it's been that fine stuff that soaks you through, as Peter Kay says. Oh, a, a British reference there, folks. This is, <laughs> this is going off to a great start. I'm going to start dropping some Only Fools and Horses lines in a, in a minute. Oh, my gosh. You plonker. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Where's the Down by the Riverside Club? Well, it's Down by the Riverside, isn't it? <laughs> now, Andrew, something I always do on the show is a, a little quick-fire McCartney okay. Beatles segment. Right. Okay. So, you know, your baseline for both me and the listeners. Okay. Questions are quick-fire, but your answers need not be. Fair enough. Go for it. Is your favourite McCartney album still Ram? Uh, yes, I would say it is. Uh, I think it's unlikely that he's going to beat that at this stage. But yeah, I think Ram is just something that gets, I think, I think the appreciation for Ram just seems to grow all the time. You know, other records, some people can maybe get a bit bored of, you know, Band on the Run might get overplayed, Mm. but Ram doesn't seem to have had that yet. It's been, I I first got to know Ram around about 1990 and it's just, it's just grown for me every year really. And I'm loving it as much as ever. I totally get that. I totally get that. The fact that Monkberry Moon Delight hasn't been featured in like a Martin Scorsese crime documentary or epic, you know, is is criminal. It really is. Yes. Favourite Paul McCartney song, solo or wings or whatever? Well, I think, personally, I think the greatest song that he has ever done in, in the whole of his career is Maybe I'm Amazed. Um, and I think it's just because it's just... It's just so purely him. And I know pretty much anything off McCartney, McCartney 2, McCartney 3 is. But the fact that it's also him singing about his favourite topic, which is Linda. You know, ev- everything on there is is him. I think it's like it, it, it's McCartney in a bottle. You know, if you want to know what is this guy all about, then maybe I'm amazed. Sort of kind of sums up what he can do and how well he can do it. So I think that's, and I'm including Beatles songs here. I think it's the best song he's ever done. Oh, wow. Would you yeah. um, extend that to the live performances of Maybe I'm Amazed? Because this podcast's <laughs> opinion is that he hasn't sung it correctly since 1970. Yeah, I mean, I mean he's, he's, he's never sung it that way, has he? He's, he's, always, he's always been a slightly different arrangement, a bit of, a, bit of extra 
piano tinkering. Zhuzh, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I don't mind, like, the 76 version. It's good. But, no, I think that version that's on McCartney, 1970, that is the definitive, maybe I'm amazed, that's, that has not come really close to since, I don't think. And it's probably one of the most underappreciated solos in his dis- discography as well. It's like, ooh, my love's the best solo ever. I'm like, ah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is the guy that, you know, he played lead guitar on Taxman and various other things. He was Don't mention the... that around George, though, yeah. <sighs> in, the guy knows his way around a fretboard and he's probably not had the recognition for that over the decades that, that he should have had. Because I guess to the general public, if you stop the general public on the street and mentioned, you know, the, the ones that you can find who know maybe I'm amazed, probably a lot of them either think it's the Beatles or they think it's Wings. They probably think he's got a full band behind him. I, don't, I think it's, it's, uh, it's the fans who realise just how much of him is on that record. Most underrated Beatles album. Most underrated Beatles album. Well, I would say Please Please Me. Mm, go on. I just think, well, especially, I think, given the fact that a couple of months ago I finished reading Mark Lewison's huge, like, the big, uber-big version of uh, Tune In. Wow. It's just incredible. Um, Sorry, I should add, I should say my signed copy of uh, Mark Lewison's Tune In. Okay, now we're talking. (laughs) Because I met him and he signed both, uh, both books for me. Yeah, I only took I only took one for him to sign, but he said, "Well, I might as well do the other one while I'm here." I'm, well, fine, yeah, suits me. Um, but anyway, having just finished reading that recently, and and sort of reading all about the build up, because that book finishes at the end of 1962, so we're talking sort of really two and a bit months before "Please Please Me," it, "Please Please Me" is recorded. Um, so seeing sort of what they were going through in terms of their set lists and uh, how they they were changing a lot at the time, and, and and even at the back end of 1962, they were they were still a fair way away from having that final set of songs as uh, as a set list. But it was just them, you know, they were they were probably like John Lennon says, they were the the, the peak of their powers as performers was kind of like the Hamburg era. And they've just come back from Hamburg in Christmas 1962, their last, last stint in Hamburg. And they're, they're just at the peak of those powers, I think, as a live band. Obviously not as a studio band. Uh, they were pretty crap in the studio from a lot of the stuff that they'd done in 1962. was very sort of nervous and had to be done a few times. And they had to go back down to London and do it again. And But as a live band and that capturing as near as it could a live sound... I just think it's absolutely fantastic. So, yeah, I would say Please Please Me doesn't get the recognition it should. Just release the Star Club tapes, Apple. Come on. Well, give, us, give us a yeah. good album version of that. Come they're on. Not, they're not going to, are they? <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure we're going to get cold cuts before that, aren't we? You know. Yeah, I think this is the, uh, it's that classic sort of difference between what we want releasing and what they want to release to us. And there's a bit of a difference there. Oh, yeah, you know, they must know that we want all 56 hours of Nagra Reel on YouTube for free. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, definitely for free. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, you know, we'll have the Carnival of Light shipped <laughs> to all of us as well for free. Uh, yeah. Colour vinyl with a unique poster in each. Yeah, that would be lovely. I think Carnival of Light, the like 2017, that was the moment if we were going to get it. I think that was it. 
it's, um, it's Stella, Stella's joked that everything's going to get out the vaults, though, once uh, Maka pops his clogs. Yeah, sure. I suppose it's you know, when we get to a point where everything is owned by some large conglomeration and it's no longer the families, mm. them themselves or, or the families of them. Uh, once, that, once that day is gone, then, you know, everything will be on a cornflakes advert. Um, <laughs> right. Overrated Beatles album. Go. Oh, overrated Beatles album. That's a tough one. Oh, God. Just say Pepper. Just say Pepper. Go on. I can't say Sergeant Pepper because I, I've, I'm on record as saying that I think it's the greatest album ever made. So I can't say that. So I will go with, for those that rate it up at the top of the list, which I know is a lot of people, surprisingly more than you'd think, I'll say Let It Be. Yep, get that. Yeah. Uh, which is it's annoying, really, because when you look at the quality of some of the songs on there, and by some of the songs, I mean the Paul McCartney songs. <laughs> you know, this this guy put out one of the strongest set of songs that he's ever put on an album. Well, up, up to that point, anyway. Mm. Long and Winding Road, Get Back, Let two It Be, us, yeah. Two of Us. You know, they're a massive, massive quality of McCartney song, which it, it, it didn't always have. Even on great albums, it wasn't always necessarily his songs that made it great. But, yeah, I think that there's a lot of people still put Let It Be up, up near the top of the Beatles albums rankings. And um, I don't know. I don't know. It's overrated, but I'm still going to buy it immediately when it when it comes out in September. You know? Oh, God, yeah. You're, stay tuned for the unboxing video, guys. We better have <laughs> at least 30 extra songs on that, ranging from Susie Parker to yes. the really awful take of Please Please Me that is about 12 seconds long and oh, is awful. Yeah. They better all be on there. Yeah, it's not going to be, though, is it? I think I think we both know that won't all be on there, but um, we'll get some of it, I'm sure. Where was Revolution Take Twenty on the White Album re-release? Yes, yeah, that was yeah, that was a shame. So we got Take Eighteen, didn't we? So close, so close, and which I I think that was like the genesis of it moving in that direction. The uh, it was like that mm. crossover, wasn't it, between Revolution and Revolution Nine? And Take Twenty is the one where I think that hit its peak. And I don't know. Did did they want to use Take Eighteen because it was the start of it? Did they want to go right back to the very sort of the very beginning of that happening. Or are they are they are they just trolling us at this point? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I don't think that, I don't think there's I don't think there will ever be such a thing as a Beatles release that um, that everybody's happy with. I don't think it's I don't think it's actually possible. You know what? That's so true. Actually, <laughs> like I mean, even with the fantastic Pepper re-release and the remix yep. the first thing that everyone said was why is it's only a northern song not on here where's carnival of light oh my gosh this, yeah. this, this is awful and then absolutely yeah carnival rinse, of rinse light and repeat, was, you know? carnival of light was the one that really really i think we should have had on there never mind look paul the song can't be so bad that it's going to sully the entire beatles legacy or is it well, there's this rumour, isn't there, that, um, and I don't think it's true, but I, I don't suppose we know, that um, part of it is on the Liverpool Sound Collage album. Oh, like buried in there somewhere. Yeah, and I think I think that was maybe partly debunked when the Pepper Box came out with the um, Free Now part that's on there, which we then found out was from, I can't even <laughs> remember what song that was on, that was from now, but um, I, I know there's been a lot of speculation over the years that he did actually bury a little bit of Carnival of Light on the Liverpool Sound Collage, but mm. probably not, but you never know. If I was working with Paul, I'd just be saying, can we can we put some backwards audio on this, please? Yeah. Can, 
say George is dead, miss him, miss him, something, you know, something. <laughs> Ringo's dead, miss him, miss him. Now that would set people off, you know. Well, it's yes, absolutely it would. Yeah. Um, now to conclude our supposedly quick fire segment that has lasted already 12 minutes. <laughs> Favourite of the original five Beatle films? The, the one that I always go back to a lot more than the others is Magical Mystery 2. <laughs> Mind blown. Okay. Yeah. Didn't it, expect it, that one. The, the likelihood is if I'm going to put on a Beatles film to watch, that is the one that I will put on. Just because it's, it, it is mental. And it's, it's, just, it's just fun. I, I don't think I'll ever get my head around it what's going on and um i think i think geographically as well the fact that i almost live 10 miles north on the dewsbury road oh, okay is very similar to where i live so I, I i quite like that but um no i love hard days night help the second half is of help is very good if i need a sleep <laughs> i like the first half of help the second half of help is i, I find quite unwatchable which is ironic because the second half of the soundtrack is not in the film as well. So maybe if well, they en- ended it on yesterday, people might have pricked their ears up a little bit more, you know? Yes. The very first movie quote that my daughter ever learned when she was about two years old was, um, I can't even remember it myself now, <laughs> the start of Yellow did, Submarine. Did, did you say, the, oh, I thought you were saying the, uh, the ring is missing or something. <laughs> no, it was, um, oh God, how does it start now? I'm having a mind blank. Uh, I can't remember. A long time ago in a, whatever it goes. Uh, There was was an unearthly paradise called Pepperland. One of the weirdest intros to a movie ever. Like, you know, screenwriting 101 dictates that the Beatles should be in that scene and we get introduced to their characters and the arc. But no, it's like, let's just have 15 minutes of non sequitur insanity Ah, to open up this movie. Definitely. I'm I'm definitely going to do a video at some point about the end of Yellow Submarine film. The uh, the live appearance that they did because it absolutely fascinates me how much it's so good it's so it's, good well just because of how much George does not want to be in the same room as Paul McCartney and and it's just so obvious on film I've got to rewatch that now folks pause the just, podcast right now let's go back <laughs> just watch that last bit whenever for example whenever John speaks George sort of lovingly looks up at him whenever Ringo speaks George sort of looks towards him in a friendly way whenever Paul speaks. George just rolls his eyes and looks the other way. It was one of those days where George did not want to be in the same room as him, and it's it's fascinating. Here's the motor. Please fuck off, Paul. You know. <laughs> so uh, yeah, We've got a little love. <laughs> it's probably the best thirty seconds of their entire career. Like it's just everything you want from all of them on a platter. I love that bit. It's it's good. I mean, it must have been great when you're in the if you're in the cinemas back. And in you didn't know as well. Yeah, absolutely. The fact that they they suddenly appeared on the screen um, after having heard Eddie Yates from Coronation Street talking as Paul McCartney for an hour and a half. Um, yeah, uh, that must have been uh, pretty good. Now, speaking of anniversary editions and archive re-releases, I'm incredibly jealous of your wall of of both of those products. Actually, okay. But, in your opinion, which is the superior product, the McCartney Archive re-releases or the Beatles' 50th anniversary editions? I'd have to say, for all its faults, I would have to say the McCartney Archive collection. Um, just be, Well, <laughs> partly because there's more of it. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to have to quantify a reason for this answer. Why do I think it's the Paul McCartney? I think just because of the depth that it goes into uh, with the... I mean, I know the Beatles one does, but the, the depth of the photography and the making of the 
the videos and the, the video content as well. That's something that they didn't have much in at the start, just, just a DVD with a, with a very short amount of content on, but you get something like the Red Rose Speedway archive collection and the video content in there is brilliant. Uh, you got uh, like Bruce McMouse, which <laughs> is absolutely crazy, but such fun. You've got things like that, that James Paul McCartney TV special <sighs> that's on there. There's about four different... Why did he make four different videos of Mary Had a Little Lamb? That's trolling at the highest order. Again, why? That's... Yeah. What's the, why, what was the reason for that? But they're all there. Uh, so I think probably the video content sets it apart uh, more than anything. Um, yeah. I've actually only just gone onto Macca's own website today to download all of the download exclusive tracks from his community page. Yes. I'd feel so annoyed if I didn't get the orchestra cut version of Some Days or the demo of Distractions on those albums. Yeah. They're absolutely beautiful little recordings. Yeah. And there's a, there's an orchestra... The, well, there's a version of Dear Friend where they've raised the orchestra level as well, isn't there? That was one what of the a fantastic concepts. Just yeah. minor tweak remixes. Just oh, let's just bring the drum level up in Live and Let Die and see what happens. Yeah, so th- those those little downloads that he drops at a really terrible bit rate uh, that, that annoys <laughs> anybody who's spent money on a decent hi-fi system. But they are sort of some of the highlights. You know, you get to four o'clock in an afternoon at some point. It's like. Paul McCartney's dropped another 128 kilobits per second MP3 of some song you didn't realise you needed another version of, and everybody gets excited for half an hour and never listens to it again. And then, and then complains, yeah. Yeah, but I, I hope he always continues to do those with every archive release. They're just a good way of generating a bit of publicity. And here's, here's some publicity for this set, and oh, by the way, you, you don't actually get this on the set if you buy it. Uh, McCartney 3, <laughs> those bonus tracks should have been download exclusives from his website and he should have got four actual bonus tracks. But, you know, that's just my opinion. Well, yes. Um, and thankfully there was a way in the end to get those four without buying four different CDs. No, no, no you're right. You just had to be a Japanese national, yeah? I've got it. <laughs> oh, did you, uh, did you export it then? Um, yeah, I just I just went onto that Japanese website and bought it, and it arrived Christmas Eve, which surprised me. I didn't expect it to get here till well into January. Uh, so uh, I mean, it seems like every obscure version of that album, except the Spotify version, was was delivered incredibly fast. Yes, just that one seems to be uh, still undelivered for most people. I think. Yes, I, I've got it. <laughs> I think. When did I get mine? I think early January, mine arrived. Yeesh. But yeah, I know there's a lot of people still waiting for that and getting quite annoyed about it, I think. Now, I was going through some of your videos and one of the titles did make me laugh and I had to watch it. Ooh. It was it was called it was about the upcoming McCartney Glastonbury 2020 performance and how it's going to be like a, a, a clinch <laughs> gig for, for McCartney. Obviously, that's age <laughs> like bread, that video. Yes, why why Paul McCartney shouldn't do Glastonbury after <laughs> that video, yeah. I think he took your advice, dude. I think he did. <laughs> he, he generated a worldwide pandemic oh. uh, just so that he could get out of doing Glastonbury on my advice. Yeah. I mean, he, he did shit-can one of the biggest bands of the 70s just just because he didn't want to tour anymore, you know. You know yeah. he, uh, he's definitely pulled stunts like that before, allegedly. Definitely. Allegedly. Yes. Um, in the way that, allegedly, Jimmy McCullough put a gun to his head in his sleep, allegedly. Um, yeah. But the worst part, though, was that this docu- this um, Glastonbury gig was meant to culminate in the Charlie Lightning documentary. Oh, yes, of course, yeah. Which sounds like it's been going on for years. 
a trailer for that came out, didn't it? It was like, it was a red, you know that picture of McCartney with his guitar on, against a red background? That, right. was the, that was the thumbnail for it. And I'm, I'm sure or an announcement trailer was made anyway. Okay, um, not then, sure. And then around the same time, Get Back got moved back to this year. Yeah, yeah. I, can't, I, I don't remember seeing that trailer. I'd, I'd be interested to have a, have a little look, try and find it. But yes, it sounds like this, this film was being made for a few years, and that would be interesting. Cause, I mean, I watched, I watched the Wingspan documentary just last week hmm. for the first time in a few years. And it was great, but you think, God, it should have been twice as long, at least, as what it was. Could be it three just, times. Yeah, it was just like it was a real whistle-stop tour. And so you think, yeah, you know, if, if, if he could have actually, if he'd have known in the 70s that Wingspan film was going to be a thing, he could have prepared for it and had a lot more material for it. So maybe that's what he was trying to do. I don't know. But, yeah, uh, yeah, but, yeah, but you can also just, 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 just have shots of the album and interview footage of people talking over it. You don't have, you don't have, have to have him composing Dear Friend for, you yeah. know, to convey that. Yeah. I think everyone other than McCartney just says to him, look, man, p- people aren't going to buy this. People don't care. But we do. We need oh, Scorsese's yeah. Wings documentary. You know? ah, wow. I mean, that would be, that'd be brilliant. I think, I think Paul is lacking something... Of the quality of the, yeah, like the George living in the material world film, you know, that Paul McCartney is deserving of something of it, at least of that stature. And, but there isn't really, there isn't really anything remotely that good available for him. But can he be deserving of it? I'm sorry, not deserving. it. Can it be made until you've got the end of the story? Well, yes, this is this is a possible thing because if it was made now, would he get too involved in it? Would he veto certain things? And and, and like you say, the the thing that unfortunately the George film has an ending, mm-hmm. which makes for a better film, but that's not that's not a good enough payoff in my view. Oh yeah, Peter Jackson said the difficulty with the two towers is that no one dies at the end. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely it's a worthy film, very very good. Now, just before we get on today's topic, from the worst news of the year to the best, how many versions of McCartney 3 do you now have? <laughs> I own four versions of McCartney 3. Uh, so I've got two CDs. I, I, mean, I was really lucky. The, the first one, the regular CD, it was that Monday night, the, the start of release week. So it would have been the Monday before the 18th of December. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was just these rumours going around on Twitter about... Uh, you know, Morrison's in Durham have been selling McCartney three and then. So oh yes, yeah. so um, so listeners, uh, there's a largely American audience. Morrison's the <laughs> yeah. like the third largest supermarket yeah. chain here in the UK, and they've yeah. got a bit of a history. I worked at Morrison's; they do have a long-standing history of releasing things on the wrong day. Is it right? Well, I didn't know whether they'd either just made a complete cock up, or I didn't know whether. I mean, this was probably my sort of conspiracy theory here. Had they had a sort of a tip-off from the record company to say, um, uh, yeah, you put this on the shelves a few days early, that'll generate a little bit of publicity. Mm-hmm. I mean, only a little bit of publicity. But oh, no, but like, again, like, was Third Man Records told to leak the Yellow Dice vinyl a few hours early, you know? Yeah, maybe, possibly. Um, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if that kind of thing goes on. But anyway, so, I, so I'd heard these sort of couple of rumours and about half past seven at night, and I just thought, well, I can't. I can't just sit here with this information. <laughs> so I thought, well, the Morrison's near. The Morrison's nearest to me. They they don't get involved in that kind of thing. They're catering to a different audience. So I thought they're not going to have it there. But if I go to the other side of Leeds, I think I might be uh, okay. So it was like a 
it was like a 20 minute drive to this Morrison's and uh, got my mask on, went in, got over to the CD section and there was one there on the shelf, just one. And it was really weird. So I picked it up and I was almost expecting a security guard to sort of sort of step out into the aisle and say, sorry, sir, put that back until Friday, please. And right through to paying for it at the till. And even once I'd paid for it, I was just Heart's really pounded, ridiculously, yeah. I was expecting a security guard to say, I'm sorry, you're not allowed to buy that until Friday. Um, and I got in the car and just sat in the car and just took photographs of it and sent it to all my friends who might care. <laughs> so that was great because it meant that I was able to sort of really hammer it over the next couple of days and, and do a do a review a couple of days before the release date, which was nice. Oh, wow. So you didn't get involved in any of the leaks then? No. So, no. Not, well, I, I, had a, I had a really bad MP3 of Find My Way probably at the beginning of December. And I listened to it once and it was such bad quality. I thought, this is putting me off. So I didn't do, I didn't do anything else. So I, I tried to avoid everything. Uh, so I went in really sort of fresh with it. Uh, Those so, early leaks did have the audio quality of a potato. Oh, abs- yes, definitely. I'm not a guy who's normally into being an audiophile, but I was even I was like, oh, there's a marketable <laughs> difference here. <laughs> like, Jesus. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, so, so, yeah, I got that a few days early. And I got the, the Japanese one, uh, well, the indie rough trade white vinyl arrived on release day and coincidentally that was also the day that i got my new turntable upgrade so that was nice so i was able to do a i did i did a listening party video which i'd never done really but it was quite fun and people seemed to enjoy it where you know i i I pressed play at my end with headphones on everybody else pressed play at the same time oh and that kind of listening party yeah so and then i just sort of like I talked about the album and people on live chat were talking about the album. For a, lot of, for a lot of the people, it was the first time they'd ever heard it because it was release day. So that was fun to do. And I got a lot of people asking me to, to sort of do more albums, you know, like why not go and do, I've got people asking me to do Driving Rain and Flaming Pie and things. So I'm probably going to do more of that, that kind of stuff. So they were the first two that I got. And then the Japanese CD arrived on Christmas Eve, which like I say, was much earlier than I expected. And then the Spotify Coke bottle green vinyl arrived sometime in January, two to three weeks ago, I think it was. And uh, that's very, very nice. My mouth is just watering. I'm trying to get my mic wet here. Bloody hell. <laughs> yeah. So I was. I, I expected to have more copies than this because uh, the, the fact that Morrison started selling it early actually cost them a few sales because I didn't expect to have it until... Amazon delivered it at some point later on the Friday, and I thought, I'm not prepared to wait that long. I will go into town. I'd book the day. I actually booked the day off work on the 18th of December because yes. it, it was McCartney 3 release day, and my plan was to go into town. Shops were open at that point. I was going to go to HMV or one of the local independents. I was going to buy the vinyl and the CD to tide me over the five or six hours until Amazon arrived. <laughs> it's ridiculous, really. Uh, but it meant that I, was, I, I could cancel my Amazon order because I've got the Morrison CD on the Monday. Wow. Oh, my yeah. gosh. See, for anyone who's not a McCartney vinyl fan, that that might not be a very compelling story, but I was gripped by that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I was, I was also I was going to get the HMV Blue vinyl. I'm surprised that's... you didn't, actually. Yeah. Every, every self-serving Brit should have that one, you know? Well, that's the, that's the one that I sort of expected to get. But then, yeah, just I think Morrison's just scuppered a lot... They, it um, it created some exciting opportunities for me to hear the album early, but it did scupper. Um, it did it did it did sort of affect what I ended up getting. 
yeah, I was really upset I couldn't get either a red or a violet one. Those were really pretty, but my sister and my mum yeah. for, for Christmas got me the white CD, the blue vinyl and the black vinyl, so I was very happy oh, with that nice. indeed. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the rare occasion where I think the, the black vinyl is the, it's the rarity. In terms of what people are talking about, yeah. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I bet it makes up only 50% of the sales of the vinyl, I'd imagine. Maybe mm. even less, you know? I, I think less, probably. Yeah, but so, no, it's, it's been fun. I mean, who could have predicted the McCartney 3 fun that happened at the end of last year? You, you certainly wouldn't have thought of that a year ago. But it's also a good album. That's my favourite aspect of it. Not only is it arguably better than Egypt Station, but I don't think you agree with that sentiment. I don't, no, I don't, I don't have a problem with anybody who thinks that. But, yeah, for me, Egypt Station is a level up. That's uh, so interesting. That's quite a unique opinion now. It seems like the, the, the very vogue opinion now is to kind of abandon Egypt Station, be like, oh, it was a, it was a bloated double album. And, yeah. you know, despite repeated warnings, <laughs> was four minutes too long. And it's like... I put it on, on my vinyl player the other day and, the, you know, over an hour flew by. It's still a really fun album. It's only 10 minutes longer than McCartney 3. It's 55 minutes. McCartney 3 is about 45. That's so strange that it's on two discs then. Like, it, it probably only needs to be a disc and a half then, doesn't it? Well, the McCartney 3 disc is pretty packed on vinyl. You know, your, uh, your run-out groove at the end is so small because <laughs> they've really gone... Um, and this is with modern vinyl pressing technology as well, where you can get those grooves closer together. Like you're yeah. right, they were pushing it like kind of like tug of war was pushing it in a yeah eighty two as well. I think there's little doubt we will get a McCartney three two disc vinyl edition at some point. They'll find a way to look how much better it sounds now that we've uh, you're not going right up to the the center of your record with the needle. It's um, but yeah, there is only 10 minutes difference between the two, which I think is a bit surprising, really. But and that's Egypt... mostly taken up by deep, deep feeling as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. But Egypt Station, it's, it's a weird one because the last, the last sort of, let's say, 15 minutes or so of Egypt Station, genuinely, there is no other album in history by anybody that gets me emotionally like the end of Egypt Station does. And if you ask me for a reason why, I don't think I could tell you. I think it was just so much better than what I had a right to expect it to be. And I've just sort of carried that with me to this day. I think new made people a little too comfortable with what the Paul sound is. Yeah. And, you know, Egypt Station is an evolution from new with the whole like multi-producer setup, And it's a very yeah. varied album. But there's just something a little more focused about Egypt Station. I hate to use the word concept because it's not a proper concept album. No. But it just moves. It just it, it goes along the track so much more gracefully than new, which is a little bit stop-start in places. Yeah. And like, you can't deny songs like Happy With You and Dominoes. You know, those are legitimate McCartney classics. It's brilliant. So, I mean, I've got, um, I've got a poster up that, I can, that I'm looking at right now as I talk to you up on, on, to, the, to my right. And it's that old Beatles poster from, I think it's 1963, and it was, um, it's that one where they're all walking down the pavement towards the BBC in the suits. Mm. And the first time I heard Happy With You, I was, uh, was kind of looking at that poster and I thought, oh, this is that, that guy on that poster, that young lad who's sort of in his early <laughs> 20s. That's him now, sort of, what, what would it have been at the time, sort of 56, 55, 56 years later. This is him telling us how his life's going. You know, he's, he's, he's happy. He used to get stoned, now he doesn't, and he's happy with you. 
And that, yeah, I got a little bit emotional at that. So now whenever that song plays, I just have a look at this poster of 1963 Paul with his three mates and thinking, um, yeah, this is what he's up to these days. So I, I love, I, I quite yeah, like. no, you're right there. That's a, that's such a wonderful arc to, to the whole story. But yeah. He doesn't definitively say he doesn't smoke anymore in in the last <laughs> in the last verse. He he drops a a little clue for all of his Colorado friends, shall we say? You'll have to remind me. I can't remember what that is. He swaps back. I like to get stoned. I believe. Ah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. But, but you know, again, Paul's history with a certain substances is hazy and foggy shall we absolutely say. yeah but i do need to go and listen to egypt station again because i've not heard it since mccartney 3 came out oh it's uh, it's good you'll you'll enjoy yourself you really will a lot of what i loved about egypt station was all the many many clues in there that i picked up on as to why it was his last album and i haven't gone back and listened to it on the basis of it not being his last album to see whether it still gets me in the same way, because there are so many things in that album that if it had been his last album, they were like... People they, want they peace, were the yeah. Clues. Ladies and gentlemen, you know... Da, na, 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 na. Um, oh, and uh, Do It Now, that's a, a, a last album song. Yeah, but there's all these little clues as well, like things like uh, Station 2 comes in and it sounds like a choir. It sounds like he's going up to heaven. And it sounds like you, you hear the guitar being plugged in and it's almost like he's gone up to heaven, plugged in his guitar because he's got he's got mates that he wants to jam with. And then he's, 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 he's playing with them. And the very last words of the album are so long, so long, so long now. Yeah. Um, on Domino's as well. In time, we'll know it's all a show. It's been a blast. Yeah. And there's so many things that are that sound a little bit like something from Tug of War or the, the first few seconds of Egypt Station, that sort of background noise is mm. very, very similar to the first few seconds of Sergeant Pepper. There's all these little things where it's just like him giving you a little reminder of this is my career. And then at the end, all these clues as to, well, it's been great. So long, so long now. Is Egypt Station the most intertextual McCartney album? There's an awful lot more to talk about on that than what I just said, but I need to listen to it again based on the fact that knowing now that it isn't his last album, does it does it still hold up as much knowing that actually what I suspected for a couple of years turned out to be not right? Well, it's a good thing you didn't, you know, go on a university college radio station because by now we'd have another Paul is dead situation on our hands. Oh, don't. Oh, dear me. No, uh, we don't talk about that after the three episodes I dedicated to it. <laughs> I don't. I don't engage with those people. There are people on Facebook. I'm not. I'm, I'm not going to name names, but there are still people on Facebook that still propagate all of that, and they're just doing it to sell books. They're just oh, doing it to sell it's books. Utterly, utterly ridiculous. Well, one of them is um, George Martin's son. Are you aware of this? What? Not jo not, what? not not Giles. No, no. <laughs> that, that, now that that would be a. That would be a twist in the story. Giles, I've been in the studio with you for thirty years. Come on. Um, no, I can't remember. I can't remember what his first name is now. But um, it would be Giles's older half brother, I think. And he is one of the Paul is dead people writing books and pushing uh, sort of seminars on the subjects. And he's just is uh, yeah crazy. I'm not saying this is what it is, but it sounds like someone's trying to make a quick buck off their family name. Do you think? Uh, I mean, it's almost like everyone who ever looked at the Beatles has written a fucking book. Well, yes. And, you know, 
it's not like only the people who have written books get advanced copies of McCartney 3 and Dice, whilst the podcasters and YouTubers get fuck all. Oh, well, well I, yes, I, I got told that I was receiving Dice and they never arrived. What? You were told you were... Re- you, oh, that's yes, the worst yes, news? That's worse uh-huh. than... Oh, my God, folks. We need to we need to stop this episode now. I've, I've got to go to MPL and give them a piece of my mind. Oh, not MPL. Capital. Capital <sighs> Records. Uh, yeah, I got um, I got an email oh. from Capital Records saying, oh. can, we have your, can we have your address, please? We've got a gift oh. for you. <clears throat> oh, oh that's, in, that's interesting. Um, and then within a day or so, lots of people in America started receiving the dice. I thought, ah, oh, that's what the gift is. Brilliant. Uh, look forward to that. And it didn't arrive. And I got back in touch with them and they were very apologetic and said, oh, see if we can sort you some more out. And I've not seen those either. So never mind. My hand is literally shaking right now. That is <laughs> that is awful news. Oh, I know. my word. I know. Never mind. Right. Let, let's purge that from our minds. We've been talking for an hour. Um, before we get onto the film that we're going to be discussing shortly, you've all read the title. I guess you know what we're going to be talking about. I think it's important that we cover all the bases, which brings us to the year 1989. Mac has had a rather lacklustre reception to press to play. The Phil Ramone sessions have been all but scrapped. And yet, through sheer force of will and conviction, he releases an unexpectedly consistent, high-quality UK number one album called Flowers in the Dirt. So, Andrew... Please don't take offence in my assumption that you were old enough to have been around when this album was released. <laughs> I was. But please, uh, talk me through your experiences with this album. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Flowers in the Dirt has got a very uh, very special place in my heart because it was the first new Paul McCartney album to come out after I became a fan. Mm. That's my Egypt station then. Right. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and, and it's only really um, in the last maybe two or three years that I can start to listen to Flowers in the Dirt a little bit more objectively rather than being sort of completely overwhelmed by my memories of the time. And I mean, a little bit of my history of how I got to Flowers in the Dirt, if, if, I, if I can for a moment. Please. We've got till 11 o'clock, you said. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... The first Paul McCartney song, the first new Paul McCartney song that I ever knew was Pipes of Peace, Christmas 1983. And uh, this was back in the days when I used to uh, tape the top 40 on a Sunday tea time onto a C90 cassette. Allegedly, you never actually did that, folks. Never, um, no, no, never actually did it, but I used to dream of doing such a thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I would just record the songs that I wanted and songs that I hadn't already recorded a previous week. And uh, so this was kind of Christmas 1983 and Pipes of Peace got to number one. It wasn't the Christmas number one, I don't think. I think it was number one just before Christmas, if I remember rightly. <laughs> but I always remember what the DJ said. And I, I can't even remember <laughs> which DJ it was. Because um, on, on, I, I like to get a little bit of DJ chatter. I know a lot of people like to try and stop the tape before. the. And that was put. No. Oh, damn. I've got those little few words. I like to get a bit of <laughs> DJ chatter. So the song would finish, Pipes of Peace, and the DJ came on and said, huddled away in a cabin somewhere, counting his money. Paul McCartney, <laughs> Pipes of Peace. I always remembered that word for word. And so I, I used to think that that's who this guy is. I, I knew that he used to be in the Beatles, and I knew that the Beatles were that band that my mum and dad had a few albums of. They had the Red and Blue album, Sgt. Pepper, Help and Rubber Soul. That, that was... That was what we had in our house. Pretty classic collection there. Can't argue with that. No, it was brilliant. So I, I knew he was one of those people on those album covers. I loved the pipe, Pipes of Peace, the song. And the, the following year, Give My Regards to Broad Street, I won a national newspaper competition 
to win the uh, Spectrum 48K computer game of Give My Regards to Broad <gasps> You owned that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. Oh. Yeah. I had the massive map of London that came with it. I've been dying to do an episode on that. Oh, <laughs> folks, folks, we might have another collab in the future. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. Andrew, please, I'm interrupting. Carry on. That's okay. So, uh, so yeah, I absolutely loved the Give My Regards to Broad Street computer game. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so then Press to Play completely passed me by. I, I don't ever remember either deliberately ignoring a record, like, for example, Press, when I was doing my hmm. Sunday tea time top 40 recordings it probably wasn't even on the radio andrew if I'm well, possibly not but i have i have zero knowledge of press to play as an album in 1986 and i've always said that if i could choose any any year in history to take somebody on in a pop quiz it would be 1986 that is like my i'll i'll have you on a 1986 quiz i'll take anybody on on that year but i have no recollection of press to play at all it's uh, it's really weird. However absurd it may seem. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember Spies Like Us, though, flipping heck. Why did I have to remember that? I had that on one of my tapes. But anyway, so um, when All the Best came out um, and the accompanying single Once Upon a Long Ago, I really liked Once Upon a Long Ago, and I thought, I'm going to get this, uh, this, this All the Best. So I bought All the Best, and it was like my Bible for the next couple of years was that album. I didn't know songs such as Band on the Run, Jet, Coming Up, Listen to What the Man Said, Another Day, and none of those songs I'd ever heard until I bought All the Best. So I just absolutely destroyed that cassette during, probably sort of during 1988. Sorry, a cassette? Sorry, what's, what's a cassette? A cassette, yes. It's this, it's this thing that you used to use in conjunction with a pencil, to uh, wind it back in when it uh, when it broke, but uh, yeah, I, I, the, the cassette revival is a horrible thing. I don't want to get started on that. <laughs> McCartney three on cassette, baby. No, that's a format too far. I loved my cassettes back in the day, but they died for a reason. <laughs> so, so I absolutely loved all the best on cassette during 1988, and I got to know the songs that were on that, and I, but but nothing else really. It was those songs plus Spies Like Us. That's all I knew of, of his catalogue. So then there started to be this news coming out. Oh, he's got a new album coming out. Called Shadow Boxing. <laughs> this, the, early 1989, he's got a new album coming out, but it's being preceded by, not what we're going to talk about now, oh. it's being preceded by an eight-part BBC Radio 1 series called McCartney on McCartney. Are you aware of that? I'm going to say yes to save face, but explain it to me as if I don't. Okay. So it was an eight one-hour episodes on BBC Radio 1, presented by DJ Mike Reed, where he talked to Paul about everything from being born in June 1942 right through to uh, the existence of Flowers in the Dirt. And it was, I just loved it so much. So I've got all eight, all eight episodes recorded. <laughs> so this was March 1989, this was on. So we're talking sort of maybe three months before Flowers in the Dirt came on. I was just learning to drive at that point, so I just hit 17. And they were my go-to tapes in the car, was McCartney on McCartney. Wow. And I actually got, I got, I got dumped by a girlfriend 
in um, after a holiday to Lanzarote. Lanzarote, oh my gosh. And, and, I, and I'm pretty convinced that the reason for me being dumped was that I spent most of the two-week holiday listening to my McCartney on McCartney cassettes that I brought in a in a briefcase with me to Lanzarote. Yeah, I've just admitted that. Um, never mind. McCartney fans' burden, you know. If 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 she can't handle the macker, you know, that's that's on her, dude. Absolutely, absolutely. So um, so with with everything that had happened with all the best and with this McCartney on McCartney radio series, um, which I did actually speak to Mike Reed about a few years ago about one little incident that happened not an incident but um something that happened in the radio show because during the first episode paul got his guitar out and started playing i lost my little girl well i'd had piano lessons when i was a little kid from the local old lady sort of a lot of kids go to she was very nice and everything and very patient but the thing i hated was she gave homework so you come back next week and say now what's a minim and sort of uh uh three beats no. So I never really got on well with it. You know, I, in fact, to me, it was more like construction. And then I tried two more times to do it. Tried when I was 16 to take some lessons because I thought it still might be a good idea, you know. Because I wrote my first song when I was about 14. It was called I Lost My Little Girl. On piano? No, that was on guitar. How did it go? Oh, I have to have my guitar in. So it goes something like this. It goes... Uh, I woke up late this morning, my head was in a whirl And only then I realized I lost my little girl uh-huh, uh-huh. Her clothes were not expensive, her hair didn't always curl I don't know why I loved her, but I love my little girl uh-huh, uh-huh. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. A great pleasure coming here today. Thank you very much. At 14, I wrote that one, yeah. Which, at the time, was... I don't know if he'd ever publicly mentioned that song at all. Um, the, the, there might be people who've been around longer than I have that uh, that could say, oh, yes, I remember him mentioning that in 1972 in an interview, but I don't remember anything before that. So he actually got his guitar out and started playing, uh, well, I woke up late this morning, and he was doing all that. So I, I met Mike Reed about maybe 10 years ago or something like that. He was he was uh, hosting a quiz night that I went to, a charity quiz night. So during a break, I thought, I've got to speak to Mike Reed about the fact that he did the McCartney on McCartney series. So I, I, went, I went up to him and I, and I mentioned to him, oh, Mike, said, I said, I loved the, uh, the series that you did with Paul McCartney back in 1989. And he said, oh, yeah, it was great. He says, oh, let me, t-, he said, let me tell you a little story. I said, I said please do. <laughs> So he said, he said, he said, you might remember there was a section in it when Paul got his guitar out and he sang "I Lost My Little Girl," the first song that he ever wrote. I said, yeah, I remember it well. He said, well, one of our engineers was sort of behind a glass booth at the time while the while the recording was being done, and this engineer apparently was a massive McCartney fan. And when Paul pulled out his guitar and started playing this song, he said, this engineer started banging on the glass booth like jumping up and down like he'd never seen anybody so excited going he's never done this song before i can't believe it so yeah mike reed was telling me this story about what happened behind the scenes on mccartney on mccartney in 1989 it's it's a really interesting series and there's there's a lot of things that have followed uh, paul mccartney like montages of clips from interviews where you'll actually realize that that's where it comes from 
Really? Yes. Wow. I have the complete set in wonderful quality if we need to have a little afterwards. That is almost as crazy as when finding out All Day by Kanye West is basically just two fingers that he did on oh, yeah. uh, Parkinson. Yes, that's right, yeah. No, so uh, so yes, McCartney on McCartney was like March, April of 1989. So I'm, so I'm starting at this point to get a bl- bit excited about the fact that there's a brand new Paul McCartney album and I'm now a fan, therefore mm. this should be fun. And then what happened is just before, I assume it must have been just before the album came out because that's how these things tend to work, is that there was a documentary appeared on television. Uh, BBC it was. It must have been BBC because there was, I recorded it, there was no adverts in it, so it must have been BBC that showed it. Um, and it was called Put It There. And it was all about the making of the new Paul McCartney album. So this is before the release of the album? I think it must have been. I think, I think things like that tend to get shown. I mean, I could be wrong, but I, I don't think so. I think it was shown just before the album came out. Yeah, according to IMDb, that would have been the 10th of June, 1989. Yes, so this would have come out just before then. So I recorded it on, on TV, and it was it was really weird. It was one of these things where I must have, for a good month or so, I must have watched it every day. <laughs> Which there's only, other, there's only been two... No, sorry, there's three. There's been three other things since then that I've done that with, and that's been when I got Hard Day's Night on video for the first time. Uh, when I got U2's Rattle and Hum film, and uh, when I got Wayne's World on video. <laughs> those, those, are the, those are the other things in my life that I must have watched every day for a month when I first got. Uh, so it's in pretty exclusive company there as a thing in my I life. I love that Wayne's World is alongside that. I mean, we've already mentioned spies, spies Like Us, but I watched the Blues Brothers for the very first time last night, so I'm on a massive Dan Aykroyd trip right. at the moment. Okay. Um, yes, of course. Yes, he was in Spies Like Us, wasn't he? Which I've still never seen the film of Spies Like Us. I've, I'm, I'm suspicious now that Paul was told it was going to be the next Blues Brothers. Yeah, or, or he thought it was another Bond theme, maybe. Ah, <laughs> oh, come on. Let Paul have another stab at it in 2022. <laughs> come on. Yeah. So, yeah, this documentary came on, which I absolutely devoured. And it was probably partly the reason why I had to then buy my own television and video to go in my bedroom because I was still living at home with my mum and dad at the time so that I could watch things like that whenever I wanted and not just have to wait until they were out of the house because they weren't going to sit and watch it. That was for sure. So, yeah, I, I absolutely hammered that documentary and, and, and then the album. And it was, So June 1989, you're saying, was the release date. That's also the month that I passed my driving test. And I remember that, that was a, it was a really nice summer. And I just remember driving around my hometown that summer with the windows down with flowers in the dirt blaring out you know all the other cool kids were listening to stone roses and <laughs> happy mondays and they were all often on, on raves and i and i'm blasting out my brave face and this one out of my car out of my car stereo so yeah i was i was a little bit old before my time then i get that i get that yeah but uh, yeah, this, uh, this, this documentary has absolutely stayed with me ever since. And um, I know that uh, I, I, there are certain versions of the documentary around, different mm. lengths. And the one that was shown on the BBC was the full length one, because I know that the, the, the shorter version that I've got was definitely missing things that I had on that video from the time. 
Yeah, apparently there was like a short introduction about cruelty to animals or something. Like, was that all related to the Friends of the Earth thing associated with the live tour or? Well, not not on the documentary there wasn't. Um, certainly not what was shown on TV. I mean, I know he, he certainly starts off the, the, the beginning of the documentary is uh, the, the very first things that he says are things like, um, you know, you've got to be ecologically minded. You can do the voice much better than I can. You've got to be ecologically minded. You know, there's not going to be here much longer. You know, you got to be. So I can't do it. I'm not going to attempt. It wasn't to. bad. That, that wasn't. <laughs> I, I've heard worse. I've heard okay, worse. fair enough. So, yeah, the, the, the start of the documentary, he is, he's, he's bang, he's straight in talking about his, I think it was, was it Friends of the Earth was the, mm. the organization that he was connected to most at that time. So, yeah, it opens with him in his, uh, his lovely suit uh, that he's wearing, <laughs> his lovely jacket, grey jacket with flowers on. I was a big fan of of his fashion sense in 1989 as well. That brown waistcoat that he wears. As long it, as it's not that yellow and black or black and white top he wears on stage oh, at Nebworth. Fuck oh, me. No, no, no that, that, that brown waistcoat. I bought a brown waistcoat the same and wore it sort of at every, every opportunity I had for about the next three years. I've, I've got some braces and a white shirt for the exact same occasion. Don't you worry. Really walk out with, with, with my thumbs aloft and a hoffer in one hand, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, so he, he starts off talking about that and then uh, you, you start to see him do some rehearsals and, and you get to see his new band because, of course, I mean, he's, he's very much... It, it, it didn't have any particular people associated with him really during the 80s up to that point. Obviously, he'd had, he'd had sort of session musicians working with him and, and the odd guest that you knew like Stevie Wonder and Michael Jackson but he'd, he'd, he'd not had that band like Wings before so to actually have a group of musicians associated where you can see that these are the people who are his backing band that, that, that this was kind of our first glimpse of those people really what do you think of this lineup though because it's for me visually it's easily the most macho lineup he's ever had it's all a bunch of blokes doing it's, rock you know absolutely yeah and there's that nickname are you aware of the nickname for this band which i've never quite understood where it came from but it kind of fits in with that Go on. Uh, they're, they're known as lumpy trousers <laughs> i've heard lumpy trousers be used for something else as well okay i mean i don't That's know what it means um, but but this band. <laughs> well, I, I think uh, <laughs> actress to a bishop, you might say. Well, yeah, but in terms of, uh, I, I wouldn't expect those two words to be used to refer to a, a Paul McCartney backing band. But if you hear, if you ever hear anybody talk about Paul McCartney's Lumpy Trousers band, this is the lineup that they're talking about. Why? And, why I don't know. Yeah, it's definitely an odd one. I've I've definitely been harsh on this band. Probably even harsher than like you know some versions of Wings, but I guess it's just because, for me at the moment, this live era of Paul is not quite as iconic to me yet. I've, I've done six yeah. hours on Tripping the Life Fantastic at the moment, and there's only a couple of songs where I can notice the individual performers, like uh, Chris Witten on Coming Up, for, for, for example, is a standout. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Hamish's uh, vocals on Ebony and Ivory, I thought, were outstanding. But, you yeah. know, there's there's not... Oh, Denny Lane's going to do Richard Corey now. Oh, wicked. Where, where, who, who decided that was a thing that Wings needed to do in the mid-70s? <laughs> Let's not even do Denny's song from his other band. Denny's going to do a, a song from a band that we've got no connection to whatsoever. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it was our introduction to this band and Chris Witten. So, I mean, I, I was going through in, in order of sort of when Paul recruited them. Chris Witten was the first 
mm-hmm. of that band to be recruited to Paul. And I listened to a long Chris Whitten interview last week for, that was done about five or six years ago. And I, I feel I owe him a big apology <laughs> because I've kind of misunderstood him, it would appear, for the last 25 years. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> because I'm convinced that I'd read somewhere, and I can only guess it was maybe Q magazine because that was my reading of choice in the 90s. I was sure I'd read Chris Witten say something like, I enjoyed playing with Dire Straits far more than I enjoyed playing with Paul McCartney because I actually got to use my technical skills as a drummer. Mm. Is, is, what I, is what I thought I'd read, and, and I'd had that in my mind for a long time, which turns out to be complete nonsense. <laughs> So yeah, Chris Whitten worked worked with Paul obviously during during this period and, and before, and then after he'd finished the the tour, he was um, he got asked by Dire Straits if he if he would go and tour with them, and his reply was, "No, I don't like Dire Straits." <laughs> <laughs> it was the answer that he gave to Dire Straits. Wow. Uh, I think I think it was I think he said it was Dire Straits' manager that he said he said, he said I don't like Dire Straits and I've heard that Mark Knopfler is a nightmare to drummers. <laughs> was his reply. Eventually, they managed to talk him round, but but he actually said in the in this interview, and I listened to about forty minutes of this interview, he was absolutely gushing about the time that he had in Paul McCartney's band being probably his favourite time that he's ever had in music. How it was absolutely brilliant, but at the end of it, he said he. he he always thought of himself as a studio drummer, maybe sort of a, a, a drummer for hire rather than a touring drummer. Yeah, because I heard that they had quite a bad split, Chris and Paul. Well, I don't know. Cause I, cause I, I think, don't know where I, where I read that. But... I mean, maybe, I, I, don't, I don't know, because I think I'm pretty sure that Chris contributed to the Flowers in the Dirt archive, so presumably still on decent terms and i've heard paul mention him a few times and never anything in a bad way but he was absolutely gushing in this interview about how it was it was brilliant he he, uh, he hated being on tour with dire straits didn't want to do it got kind of forced into it but he looks back on the paul mccartney area with era with absolute fondness so i kind of owe him an apology for thinking bad of him for 25 years but it was interesting as well in this interview so he was saying that uh, he mentioned that he was recruited first and he, he went into a little bit of detail, perhaps more than you might think that Paul might want him to. So he, he said that how it was sold to him as a, as a gig was that Paul was looking for a younger band so that he could rebuild his reputation as a rocker. Mm. So after coming, on the, coming off the back of the Frog Chorus, um, Pipes of Peace being a bit of a flop and Press to Play being a bit of a flop, Broad Street being a, a big flop in, in, in certain ways, it was the point really was kind of like a make or break he's 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 got to get out there and do it and prove that prove who he is because the last sort of five years or so have not really done him any favors so 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 chris said that paul was looking for a younger band so he could build his reputation as a rocker now chris also said something that i'm I'm not exactly sure what he meant by it I've, i've kind of got my own thoughts so he said that the first thing that he did with paul was um, working on something for the Rupert soundtrack, which I'm not sure whether that's right or not. And I wondered whether what Chris actually meant was Once Upon a Long Ago, which was March 1987 that was recorded. Um, So that could well be what he meant, because the Once Upon a Long Ago video used quite a bit of animation, and it looked as... I think it was originally 
wasn't it supposed to be something to do with some sort of a film? So maybe he thought that that's what it was. Or, or maybe he did do something Rupert-related that I don't know about. I'm, I'm not quite sure. So he did that, and then he did the, um, he did the Russian album sessions for mm. Chop BCCCP, and that was July 87. So he was kind of firmly on board then. Paul had mm. kind of accepted him and said that uh, you know, he was the guy that he wanted. The other thing that Chris said in this interview that I thought was quite interesting was they'd done a lot of sessions for the album for Flowers in the Dirt uh, during the sort of the back end of 1988. Mm -hmm. And nobody was really sure which songs were going to make it onto the album. So so he said what what Paul did, he gave all of the the band who were there at the time. And I don't think I don't think Wix was with them by that point. I could be wrong, but he gave all the band a tape of all the songs that they'd done so far and said, right, we're finishing for Christmas. Over Christmas, just listen to this tape. And then when we come back, we'll all sort of throw our opinion in as to what songs we want to continue with when we come back in the new year. And that's what they did, apparently. Um, And I'd never heard that mentioned anywhere until I heard Chris talking about it on this interview. So it's quite interesting that he was really sort of interested in the band's opinion and he was really, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't always a case of, you know, Paul, every decision has been made by Paul McCartney here. He yeah. really wanted everybody to know, to, to input what they thought was the best thing that they should be doing. That does sound a little bit too close to, you know, when uh, he was like, right, guys, I want everyone to go home this weekend and, and write a new single and we'll pick the best one. <laughs> Coincidentally, we're going to pick my one. Good night tonight, daytime night till I'm suffering. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I doubt that they were recording any Hamish Stewart songs during that period, but... Uh, I want the first stone to be the first song on the album, Paul. Come on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> party, yeah. party. So, uh, so yeah, Chris was, Chris was very much sort of in there from the early days. And, and then I think Hamish was next. And I, I was amazed. I looked, up, I looked up how old Hamish and Robbie were when they joined Paul's band. Because purely because me looking back, my memories of it from the time were that these were a couple of really old men. Who they Paul do look old. They do, they do look, look old. like old men. Hamish was 39 <laughs> at the time. Robbie was 31. And he I looks just, but like I just, a guy in his mid-40s, doesn't he? Yeah. I just think of them as being, you know, at least Paul's age, possibly older. Is it the fashion or just the cameras? Like the, like the really grainy, poor, low-pixel quality? I don't, I don't know. I think the fashion, definitely. I, but... Um, yeah, I remember being really well. I was really surprised. This, this was just last week when I looked. At, I looked them up on Wikipedia for their ages, and I thought I can't believe, especially that Robbie was only thirty-one back then. Um, incredible. But so yeah, Hamish was next in, and so obviously he'd been with the average white band, which I didn't know at the time. I didn't know. I'm not sure I could still name a song of theirs now, to be honest. But I can't. It's. I think it's kind of interesting that there's a definite kind of there's a template for a Paul McCartney band and it started with wings with Denny Lane of, and it's happened ever, ever since. And Hamish is the person in this band of the, the sort of versatile person who can play whatever Paul isn't. So who's that now? Is it Rusty or Brian? Uh, Brian, I would say, because, because Rusty's pretty, he's, he's exclusively guitar, isn't he? Whereas Brian will play bass when Paul's on the piano, he will switch to guitar when Paul, is on bass, mm. for example. So obviously, I think Denny Lane did that. I think he, 
pretty, I think Denny Lane played bass now and again, didn't he? When he yeah, had he to do played anything. bass on like maybe yeah. on Maze and stuff like that. Did Jimmy ever play bass? Ooh. I'm sure he may have played bass once on like one song. Maybe for something like Wings Over the World, not like Wings Over America, perhaps. Yeah. I, I, I don't know, possibly. But there's definitely always been that um, that sort of, I don't wish to use the word floater. Virtuoso, shall we say. That's, that's the word I'm looking <laughs> yeah. for. Uh, that, that person who kind of um, fills in whatever, whatever Paul's not doing, this person steps in. Wixie's a bit of that, though, as well. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So he play, More in a production the, sense and an arrangement sense, but yeah. Yeah, he'll play the accordion now and again. I think he, do, he, does, he does get on the guitar now and again as well, doesn't he? Wix? I think possibly for something like Put It There he did, where they were yeah. all on guitar. Yeah. Don't quote me on that, though, folks. No. Uh, so, yeah, Hamish was, and like you say, he's got a great voice. He's got that really sort of soulful voice, and I think Paul knew that and, and used it to good effect. Even, you know, when, he, when they did the Unplugged a couple of years later, Hamish got to sing... Ain't No Sunshine, didn't he? And, uh, and Paul went on to drums for the song. So he, he, he was keen to, to use Hamish's talents there, definitely. And who else have we got? Then We've got Robbie, up. Robbie McIntosh. Um, the, the old, old Robbie McIntosh. 31 years old Robbie McIntosh. That's just incredible. What I certainly didn't know at the time was that this was somebody whose music I already knew. So he'd come off the back of um, a few years in The Pretenders. And I know one song specifically now that I know that he played on was uh, 2,000 Miles, which is one of my favourite songs of that era and coincidentally is on the exact same C90 taped on a Sunday tea time that Pipes of Peace was on. Wow. So I had I had Paul McCartney and Robbie McIntosh existing on the same piece of cassette back in 1983, uh, none of us knowing what would happen later on. Maybe you are more interwoven in this tapestry than even you know. Well, possibly so, but uh, I think I think Robbie is, I think technically he's probably the best guitarist that Paul's had. Interesting. I don't have enough information to challenge you on that. I'm I'm, I'm afraid. So I'm going to put it to the audience, uh, folks. I'm always asking for random emails, but who is the best guitarist Paul McCartney has ever had? Drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail dot com. I'd love to hear some answers. Yeah, so I think like Jimmy McCulloch, for example, and Henry before him, there were maybe a bit more instinct kind of players and just Robbie was technically brilliant. I think probably a better guitarist than Rusty. I'm not knocking Rusty cause he's really good, but I think Robbie's probably the best that Paul's had in that role. He, he could, he could do it all. He was brilliant. And last we come to, to Wixie then, Wix? I guess. Well, well last, you know, there's Linda. She was already there though. She's... She was. She's like the rose with the Romans. Oh, well, the Linda goes without saying, doesn't it? I would love to know what went through Linda's mind at various points, because I can't help thinking that uh, there was a little bit of her in 1980 that thought, oh, thank God that's over. <laughs> and then when Paul started it all back up again at the end of the 80s, I wonder how that conversation went. Did Linda very, very willingly step back into being a, a rock star on album and on stage? Or was it a case of, oh, God, I've got to do this for the next few years again? And I, I really don't know what her opinion was on that. Here's a question. How old were the kids by this point, by 89, 90? Were they all 18? No. So okay. um, Mary would have been about 18, 19. Stella would have been a couple of years younger. Heather would have been, what, I don't know, 26-ish, 26, 27. Probably 
probably not having to, she was probably able to stay at home on her own by that point. Uh, and James, I think, would have been about uh, 11, because I think Lin- Linda had James round about the London town era, didn't she? 78. Just before, yeah. Yeah, yeah before so that. he would have been about sort of 10, 11 years old. So they were, I think they did, I think they probably went on tour with the parents, because I, I can't imagine Paul Linda going off and doing that and leaving the kids behind. It wasn't their thing, was it? I mean, Paul's got to smuggle his marijuana somehow, hasn't he? <laughs> yeah. Stella, will he just look after this for me? No, he wouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Not when they're old enough to refuse or know what's going on, but if they're just in a nappy, <laughs> allegedly, well, allegedly. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd, l- I'd love to know how keen Linda was to get back into all this again. Uh, I, d- I don't know, but I think, um, so yeah, Linda and Wix. Wix was the last one to come in, and it's incredible now that he's been with Paul for over 30 years. And you, you hardly see him in this documentary, in the Put It There documentaries. You know, just every now and again, he'll appear on screen with his head down with his hat on, so you can hardly see his face anyway. You'll see him for a couple of seconds, but he's he's hardly in it. And I just think, you know, if they'd have known what a part of his career he was going to be over the next 30-odd years... I'd like to think they would have given him a little bit more airtime, but Just you never know. Just a little know. bit, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, Wix is great. I think he's like a musical director, isn't he, for Paul's bands these days. And um, I know he gets slated a bit for some of his horn sounds, and I think it probably did allow Paul to be maybe maybe a little bit, I don't, I don't think lazy is the word, but you know where some bands put on a great show because they get in a live brass section or a bit of a live orchestra? yeah. And Paul's never really had to do that in the last 30 years because he's had Wix and his uh, Roland keyboard. Yeah, because when I saw him in 2018, there was six, uh, there were six members of a brass band that were inter- interspersed in the audience, and it was so much better. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. It was very much like, um, you know, in Love Actually, when they're doing All You Need Is Love and people just stand up in the audience playing brass, uh, brass instruments. It was very much oh. like that. I'll pretend, I'll pretend I've seen that film. Oh, you haven't seen Love Actually? Oh, no. my God. <laughs> you watched Wayne's World every day for 10 years and you haven't seen Love Actually? <laughs> yeah, oh sorry. But, uh, yeah, there you go. Um, I'm calm. I'm calm. Okay, good, good, yes. Uh, so, uh, yeah, Wix. It's, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's just incredible how long he's worked with Paul for, really. And uh, been a great servant to him over the years. No, he must have a lovely nest egg at the end of all this. If 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 he doesn't, he's got the patience of a saint. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But uh, yeah, I, I think overall, I think this was a really, I think this was a really good band. It was it was quite. I think just production wise, it was quite a safe era. I don't know how well this band would have worked. For example, I, I, I personally think that what Paul's done in the last few years has been a lot more interesting production wise than what he was doing back then. Mm-hmm. And I, I think this was its quite a safe band. Technically great, and I really like them, but I wonder how much... Uh, I wonder how good they would have been in a more experimental era. I'm not so sure. I don't know. Who knows, eh? And yes. now that we've discussed the band members themselves, let's, let's move on to the documentary. Yes. The best summary I could find was from McCartney's own website, and it reads as thus... This fascinating hour-long documentary film takes the viewer to the very heart of the creative process, focusing on the 1989 acclaimed album Flowers in the Dirt. Mixing studio footage with interviews, 
Put It There features Paul McCartney talking candidly about the process behind some of the most album's beloved songs, especially a detailed exploration of the single My Brave Face, co-written with Elvis Costello. Candid, anecdotal and honest, the documentary is a must for any Paul McCartney fan and was expanded for its DVD release to include a gallery selection and previously seen unseen uh, and, uh, and previously unseen footage. Yes. Now, that <laughs> is uh well, it sounds like Derek Taylor wrote that, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's quite it's quite a claim for something that they've never really Pushed. properly properly released. I mean, I know it ended up in the archive collection. Ah, so is that your copy from the archive collection, your DVD, or is that a separate purchase? No, so I uh, I, I no longer have the VHS that I recorded in 1989. <gasps> that, went, that went a long time ago. Oh, my heart. Uh, but I happened to be in Amsterdam in 2005, and I saw it on DVD. So, and I was, I was so, it's like the only thing I remember about that holiday is that I saw Put It There on DVD <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a record shop in Amsterdam. So I, I bought it then, and what I bought is the version which runs at 52 minutes, which has got a fair few things missing that were on that original TV broadcast. But the, thankfully, the one that was in, is in the archive collection is back to being as near as you are now ever going to see the full version. There is one tiny little edit in that version, and it's, <laughs> it's because Paul does a Jimmy Savile impression. No. Yeah. So have you no. not seen that? Have you not? You won't have seen that bit, will you? Oh my God! So does he do like? Does he do a little minute, Jimmy? Just like that. It's 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 right near the end where he's talking about, um, you know, you got to have a laugh in the studio, and then it cuts to this little montage of various clips of them having a laugh in the studio. Oh, he goes now, then, now, then, now, then. That's it. My yeah. babe, my babe, my babe. I was about that then. I'm running the marathon. That's give me. Oh my with a God. fake with a fake cigar in his mouth. You've just yeah. connected those dots there. I've got neurons firing in every direction now. Oh, oh my God! Yes. So that that little bit, uh, yeah, I can understand why. I'm, I'm not a great fan of censoring things like that. Coincidentally, I did happen to listen to Kate Bush Ariel today in the version that has Rolf Harris uh, singing a song on it. But um, yeah, I can understand why it was cut out, but it does mean that you are... I, I don't think the actual full version is available anywhere, unfortunately. Yeah, I can imagine, like, you know that Phil Spector Christmas album that was retitled to Christmas with Phil Spector? I can imagine yeah. if they ever re-release that again, it'll go back to the original title. Christmas with Ronette, the Ronettes and Friends. <laughs> I mean... I can't believe John said to Phil, treat me like Ronnie at the start of the rock and roll sessions. <laughs> Famous last words, if there ever was any. Oh, yes. my gosh. Was that before or after Phil waved a gun at him? And uh, stole his uh, James Dean tapes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so, yeah, so um, I've, I've got the DVD uh, that I bought in 2005, and, uh, and then I've got the version, the, the fullest version that you're going to get now in the archive collection. How is that package? Just in like a little cardboard yeah. sleeve, or it's it's kind of like all the other archive collections, really. Where when you well, all the more recent ones, anyway, where you've got various books inside the deluxe package, and one of the books is one where all the discs are slotted in. Ah, very so nice. it's 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 the DVD disc for that, uh, which has got it's got a few videos of you know my brave face and the, uh, the singles, but then it's got the put it there documentary. So it was. Uh, Tracy McLeod was the lady who was interviewing him, journalist. And I thought even that was interesting, the fact that 
previous album, uh, Press to Play, when, when he'd, as far as I know, Press to Play was the first one where he'd done this kind of thing, like a, a, a special to promote his new album, even though they've, they've rarely mentioned Press to Play in it. They were, they were much more keen to talk about other things. But even on that, where he's got, uh, he's been interviewed by, I think it was Richard Skinner, who was about as close to Simon Bates as you can get, uh, <laughs> or sm- like a smashy and nicey kind of character. Whereas here, he goes for a sort of a, a young, up-and-coming journalist type of interview. And she's far too clever for this documentary. She's like talking about how melodious the bass is and stuff yeah. like that. And I'm like... I'm sorry, you're supposed to ask him how Let It Be was written and, and then listen to the anecdote about his mum. Yeah. That's how this is done, yeah? Exactly, yeah. Well, I've, I've got a bit of a regret here because I actually got in touch with Tracy a few years ago when um, just before the Flowers in the Dirt archive got um, announced, it was, it was in that period where we, we know in a couple of days it's about to be announced. So I got in touch with Tracy on Twitter and I, I found these tweets the other day, they're still there, <laughs> where I said to her... Um, I, Along with a picture, a screenshot, as it, like like she'd forgotten what I was talking about, so a <laughs> screenshot to remind her that uh, she'd done this Paul McCartney documentary. But oh it, yeah, I met Paul it, McCartney that one time. Yeah, yeah, it was. I sent her a, a screenshot of the the start of the end credits where it says interviewer Tracy McLeod in front of an image of Paul starting to sing "Let It Be." So I sent this picture along with it looks like this documentary that you did back in 1989 is about to be re released. Uh, any chance I could do an interview with you to to talk about your memories of of what happened over those that day, couple of days, however long it was? And um, her first reply to me was, "I can't believe they spelled both my first and my last name wrong in the credits." <laughs> oh no! She said, "Do you know who's re- who's re-releasing it? Because I'm going to get in touch with them and see if they'll redo the credits." I thought, well. Good luck with that. I don't think we'll be doing that kind of thing. But uh, but she did say to me, yes, um, yeah, why not? I'll, I'll happily do that. And a bit of a regret of mine is the fact that I didn't follow up on it because I didn't really have an outlet for it. I hadn't started doing YouTube at the time. And I thought, well, if I do, if I do interview her, what am I going to do with it? I, I haven't got a website or anything. It's not going to go anywhere. So what's the point in me doing it? And I did, so I didn't do it. I, you know, I wish I had now. But that does suggest, you know, if you fancied getting in touch with Tracy, it does suggest she might be up for that kind of thing because she's already said yes in the past. If you don't think I've already written that down, Andrew, we're not on the same level of mutual oh, respect that, that I thought. <laughs> there we go. But, uh, <laughs> it did tickle me that, yeah, her main concern was both her names had been spelt wrong. <laughs> that's, that's classic Beatles, that is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> down to the finest detail, except for the obvious details. Yes. So as far as I'm aware, the main big differences between the two edits are a lot of the songs tend to run a few seconds longer, as yes. well as the inclusion of Hello, Goodbye and Just Because. Yes, it's not... Um, well, when it says Hello, Goodbye in the, the track listing for it... Oh, is that because it's the it's, coder to put it there? Yes, it's the... Oh, hey, I feel like, oh, hey, oh, hello. That's all I feel is. like a right twat now. Oh, no, no, it's, no, I mean, it clearly says... I'm, look, I'm looking at the DVD as we speak, and it says... Hello, goodbye. But no, it isn't. It's uh, they do um, they, they finish off, put it there, and they yeah. went yes, and they got straight into the uh, the Hawaiian style coda of hello, goodbye. It's so good though. Like when I heard it on Tripping the Life Fantastic the first time, it brought such a smile to my face. I was like, he knows how. Paul is <laughs> one of the best gleaners of nostalgia ever. Like Paul should have been put in charge of the new Star Wars trilogy because he would have done it correctly. <laughs> 
You know, um, I think uh, Palpatine should be Ray's grandfather, you know? <laughs> oh, spoiler alert. Oh, sorry, 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 folks. Uh, came out two years ago. <laughs> now, one of the elements that really got me excited for this documentary, though, was the director and the producer, because Jeff Wanfall and Chip oh, Chipperfield yeah. would go on to create a little-known documentary series yes, called The Beatles Anthology. Yes. Um, am I correct in assuming you've seen that obscure documentary series? Uh, have a guess. <laughs> go on. <laughs> yes. Um, it was... Oh, that, I mean, that was such a, a huge event in my life, was The Beatles Anthology. Absolutely incredible. I remember 1995, November 95, when it was first on TV. That's, it was on a Sunday night on ITV. I think 8 o'clock. I mean, could you imagine them doing something like that at 8 o'clock on a Sunday on ITV? And I think they did it similar in America. I think it was like really prime time on big stations. I'm sure your, your American listeners will likely remember exactly what channel it was on, what day of the week it was on. Uh, I mean, they even had a scheduled broadcast that you could see in the TV listings to show the uh, free as a bird video oh, that's what an event it was and it was something and it was something like five to eight midweek one night it was like something like a tuesday night and they'd got you know uh, whatever program it was that would normally be on from half seven till eight they'd, they'd moved it forward i don't know if it was coronation street or something and then they just slipped in the, the free as a bird video it was like five to eight in the tv listings and they did the same a few months later with real love as well so it was a massive, massive event. It really, it was. Uh, it's just fantastic. It's still, a it's still an Beatles song. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> like, you must have been, you must have been losing your mind. You oh, and, it was, and it was free as a bird. Kept off the number one slot by Michael Jackson's Earth song. Ah, ah, oh, yeah. honestly, like folks, I love Michael Jackson. I can separate him from his personal life very yep. easily. I oh, do yeah. the same with John Lennon, the wife-beating heroin addict. You know. You can do it. You can separate people. Yeah, yeah. Earth Song is one of his worst singles. Oh my god, yeah, I hate well, that song so much. At least, at least Jarvis Cocker got, um, sort of did us all a favour at the Brit Awards the year after when he was uh, when he was performing that. So, <laughs> oh, what you. happened? Thank sorry? you, Jarvis. Um, when um, Jarvis got up, uh, you know the story about Jarvis got up on stage and uh, waggled his bottom at Michael Jackson and <sighs> and got arrested for the trouble. And uh, was was then um, <laughs> he was represented in uh, police custody by Bob Mortimer. <laughs> I'm sure all all, uh, all your American listeners are wondering who uh, the heck Bob Mortimer is. One of our finest comedians. I did a four hour episode on the on the Ruttles where I talked about Rutland Weekend Television. My American yeah. listeners are more than aware that I make very British references on the show. <laughs> you plonker. Yes. <laughs> no. Uh, just. The very fact that there was new Beatle content, uh, that, that is so indescribable to me. But something yeah. I, I, I want to touch on with the idea of uh, this being directed by George Wanfer is that he also went on to direct Paul's first Cavern Club gig in 99. Okay. The, uh, the inferior Cavern Club gig. I mean, the modern Paul, Paul McCartney time slot now is quarter to 12, uh, you know, with his latest one. And I think the last time we saw Paul on primetime TV would have been The X Factor, which is quite sad, actually. Mm. But yeah, back to George Wanfer. I'm pretty convinced that his inclusion in this and the fact that he is a poor man is another one of those little reasons that forced George Martin to be ousted from the project. Because you can't have Paul's producer, Paul's director and Paul on this project. 
I also just want to quickly talk about the cinematography and the presentation of this documentary because it's way more interesting than it should be. Oh, God, yes. Throughout, you get a lot of dynamic TV and screen interplay. You could have Paul appearing on four different TV screens in a very hard day's night kind of manner. Or you'll cut to this... Uh, it's a shot that's reflected and flipped to the other side of the screen in a, in a bit of symmetry, but one's in colour and the one's in sepia yeah. or black and white. They didn't have to do any of that. No, but, no. I mean, the times when they don't do that, a lot of the footage is admittedly quite flat. Yeah. And you know what? Kudos to George Wanford by saying, you know what? Let's just fucking make this look more interesting. And he did. Yeah, I, I, it really does, and it's um, the, the, yeah they were they were pulling out a lot of tricks, and that's one of the things I really enjoyed back in 1989. Because all right, you look at it now, and you might think, oh, it looks a bit a bit cheesy effects, but at the time it was like, oh wow, this is great. And um, even just things like when they when they do figure of eight, and they, they just wash it in a blue color, the whole thing's blue, and it's just like it just seems to fit. But there's there's a really good example that I, I think might not have been on the version that you watched. Did, did your version have Fool on the Hill? No. Fool on the no. Hill, that's the one I meant to mention earlier, not Hello Goodbye. Right. Yes. So Fool on the Hill is the, probably the biggest example of what you're talking about, and you oh, won't no. have seen it, unfortunately. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's it's like these crazy effects. So it does the, it does the verse as normal. And then uh, when it cuts to the bit where he's going round and round and round, <laughs> the don't don't tell me the camera starts spinning. Well, not one camera, <laughs> <laughs> not just one camera. It's about you. You then see you see Paul playing the piano, but then you see Paul playing the piano in about ten different smaller windows that are rotating in a carousel fashion on screen. And it's just, oh, in, in 1989, I can't say how good that looked. That sounds trippier than the US, the USOLA video. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my. It's, it's, yeah, it's, so it's probably the biggest example of that, um, which unfortunately isn't on that 52-minute version. But, yeah, like you say, there is a lot of, a lot of that kind of effect. And it, I think it just makes it a bit more interesting visually. certainly did in, at the time. Because I think everything has to be watched in context. Um, I'm a great one for context. You know, you, you might say something looks a bit cheesy now, but, you know, you, this was 1989 and it could only be made using things that were available in 1989. And I think it's harsh to judge it by you know, any other If standard. you say 1933's King Kong has bad special effects, I'm not going to take any other opinion you have seriously. I'm just exactly. not. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, if I, if I see a film from 1973 that looks completely of its age that's great i want to see a film that looks like it was made in 1973 and that's exactly what i would have got if if i'm watching something from that period so i think yeah the effects are great and yeah they are used quite a lot throughout uh, like you say it might just be bits when him when he's talking inst- and instead of us watching him talking you're actually watching four tv screens all showing the same thing uh, which is quite interesting i mean i don't know whether paul himself either had that idea or whether he took that idea and remembered it a few years later. It, it was on TFI Friday, which anybody who's, uh, t- who took any notice of the Flaming Pie archive last year will remember those two clips of, of when he appeared on TFI Friday doing the type oh, of song. because to me, it reminded me of the, of the opening of the James Paul McCartney TV special when they're doing Big Barn Bed, and there's oh, like God, 50 yeah. TV screens. Yeah, like the Kenny Everett show kind of thing behind him yes yeah, so, so, british reference for our listeners <laughs> yeah. um there's a beatles connection there with kenny quite a oh, quite yeah, a good yeah, beatles yeah. connection 
Um, so yes, of course, there's that as well. So it's it's something that's um, appeared every now and again throughout his career. So maybe maybe it's something that he saw. Like you say, Hard Day's Night. I think when they're in the studio rehearsing, there's there's things like that. So maybe it's just something he always remembered and liked to use now and again. I just like squares, you know. <laughs> yeah, L seven C moon. Oh, um, never going to understand what that means. Uh, May vest in a in a sweaty vest. Like, come on, Paul, you've got to let us know what that means now. Come on, yeah. But then Sea Moon. That's like the, that's the first song you see in the film. Just one last thing before we get into the film itself, though. What does your copy look like? Is it actually HD? Mm, Have they touched really it up, or, or is it as grainy as ever on the DVD? Still, I would say. So you you mean the archive collection version? Yeah. I would say I think it is. It, it's a step up from the DVD. It's not. Uh, I mean, for example, when I saw Bruce McMouse, oh, I just thought, my God, this looks fantastic. I was not expecting that to look that good. This, this probably, this, this must have been recorded onto TV. I mean, I'm not a, a film person, but I know there's like different numbers of millimeters, isn't there? This wasn't recorded in 35 mil and able to be made HD, I don't think. But it's, you know, it's it's all right. Some of the studio stuff looks quite good. Yeah, you know, it does. And um, it's definitely got that old camera quality thing where it's like, as long as everything's taking place in a well-lit studio, it looks great. Moment yeah. you take it outside, it's going to look awful using natural light. But, you know, yeah. case rasa up. Let's uh, dive into the film. And with okay. me, it opens with Paul basically saying, there's no better than working with John Lennon. Yeah. Is that where it starts with you, or is that that little bit of chit-chat at the start? There's a little bit at the start that I think we alluded to earlier, um, his sort of environmental phase, where yeah. really I think I think what it is, it's just taking a couple of clips that appear in the documentary and just showing you them up front. So it's nothing that doesn't appear later on. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, yeah there's, there's things like where he's saying, um, you know, you've got to be ecologically minded these days, otherwise you're not going to be here much longer, you know. And, and then, and then, and then like, I think yeah. it does say... You can't get better than working with John Lennon, I do believe that. So, yeah, th- those are bits that I think do reappear later on, but it's just sort of setting the scene a little bit. Uh, yeah. It doesn't seem to be the most practical statement ever, that does it? Because, I mean, you've just done a collaboration with Elvis Costello and it's going to sour any future collaboration you have, isn't yeah. it? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. But like he says, it's kind of probably the nearest thing that he'd had to it since then. The fact mm-hmm. that he was working with a, a sarcastic... Scouser who, yeah. <laughs> probably, who can probably get, um, who probably tells you when he doesn't like something, that probably appealed to him. And I, I, I seem to, I remember reading an interview not too long ago, a couple of years ago, maybe, where it was talking about, uh, you know, that they they wanted to bring somebody in to work with Paul as a songwriter because of these these issues that he'd had over the last few years, where everything he did didn't seem to be gold anymore. That they wanted to sort of try and get him with somebody who. Who, who he could work with and collaborate with and, and really sort of make a name for himself as a new kind of partnership. And, and Elvis turned out to be that man. I've never seen someone resist becoming a legacy artist quite like McCartney in the 80s, you know. He went down fighting the entire way. There was no like, oh, well, you know, I guess I'm just going to be like Jerry Lee Lewis and do the same hits for 90 years. It's so admirable. It really is. Yeah, I think everything up to and include in 1983, Pipes of Peace, it's new, this is what I'm doing now, and then the, the first sort of hints of it really are, are Broad Street, aren't they, where he, he reworks a few Beatles songs. 
quite nicely some of them. That might be a controversial opinion. But uh, I quite like some of the things that he did there with some of the old songs. Not what he did with Silly Love songs. That was awful. But, uh, yeah, 84 is kind of the first the first Cracking time the where he, armor, starts yeah. to, he starts to look back a bit. And then I think the, the, the odd live appearance that he made in the mid-80s, there was uh, Live Aid, he chose Let It Be, which I think you, had to, you couldn't really come on at Live Aid and say, here's my new single. Coming out in a few months, it's called Spies Like Us. Pretty little head, yeah. Yeah, you couldn't you couldn't do that at Live Aid. And um, Hillman, Hillman, you know. Yeah, and the fact that he had obviously technical issues at Live Aid just made, meant that it bombed, and he didn't come out of that looking particularly great in the eyes of the public. Uh, Princess then, Trust was good though. Yeah, Princess Trust the year after. So that was I've heard him talk about that. That was the first kind of thing that started giving him the like grain of an idea of going back out and performing live. So you, uh, I heard an interview years ago, I think he was on the Steve Wright radio show, and he was talking about uh, Long Tall Sally, I think he did at that mm-hmm. show, where he tried to do it in the original key, and he was like, I'm going to tell. No, I can't do that. I'm going to tell. <laughs> I'm going to tell. <laughs> he said he had, to lower, he had to lower the pitch so much, he, he was like a bit shocked by it, and he's... He's tried to resist that ever since, hasn't he? Lowering the key mm-hmm. from what it originally was, but he did say that that kind of thing, the prince's trust was, you know, it started getting thinking again about, oh, you know, might might not be a bad thing to to play live. And then, of course, the Russian album going back and doing the old rock and roll songs that must have started a fire because a lot of what we'll talk about a bit later on is songs that you know he'd done a couple of years ago, a couple of years previously on the Russian album that he was still rehearsing with his new band, and some of them even made it onto Tripping the Life Fantastic. And and were better than some of the Beatles songs on that album as well, if I'm not too blunt. Yes, uh, yes. Well, I certainly have some varied opinions that we will be covering before we finish on some of those rock and roll songs and the performances that he did. A long time ago, I was in New Orleans. I met <laughs> Fats Domino. Yeah. <laughs> oh. So... Yeah, it, it was certainly a time where he was um, he was trying to figure out who he could still be and still be relevant. Because if I think if he'd got it wrong at the end of the eighties, which I don't, I think overall he didn't get it wrong. But if he had done, I don't know whether he would would he have ever recovered and become the a second Broad Street. Could he have recovered from a second Broad Street? Yeah, that is a yeah. very interesting question. Absolutely, yes. Now you say he was trying to figure out who he was. Well, apparently, according to this documentary, he was considering Sea Moon for Tripping the Life Fantastic and the 1989-90 tour. still a little bit sore that we lost the sea moon little woman love medley from the uh, wings to over the world to wings over yeah, america yeah i love this song always have yeah it, it didn't really go back to any like medleys did it? I, mean, I, I was listening to um your podcast recently about uh tripping the life fantastic and i think you were having to talk about uh 
why didn't you do the uh, Venus and Mars rock show oh, jet yes. intro? And uh, I, I think I, I kind of suspect did he want to distance d- distance yeah distance himself from that and say you know I'm not I'm not going to become a Wings legacy act yet. I'll do some Wings songs, but I'm not actually going to copy sort of specific things that wings did i think he wanted to sort of set himself out this is me now i'm I'm embracing my beatles past and and this is what i've got for you Uh, but i think sea moon was it's one of those songs that he loves to go back to he doesn't seem to perform it in front of an audience much but he loves it at sound checks yeah it's certainly one of his sound check favorites and it does seem to crop up uh throughout the years uh, and it's yeah, I kind of guess it is a little bit of a surprise. It's not on Trip in the Life, fantastic, is it? It must have been a sound check somewhere. Yeah, um, though yeah. I've never heard it on the various illegal, illicit, expanded versions of Tripping the Life, fantastic. So mm. maybe not. At least we got Inner City Madness, you know. <laughs> mm. um, yeah, great. So <laughs> next up, we have the tail end of the first performance of My Brave Face. Yes. Um, They were definitely pushing this single, and one of our mutual friends, uh, Dino, who runs a fantastic Facebook quiz, uh, I actually saw a picture of him in London in 1989, and there were posters for My Brave Face. Yeah, yeah. Was that real, or am I looking at a crazy alternative dimension? No, I think that sounds that sounds reasonable. I know they were they were pushing these as big hit singles. They didn't, if I remember rightly, and this is purely me going from memory. Did My Brave Face get to something like number eighteen? in the UK charts. It wasn't Some, very high. It was top it 20. It was something like that. Um, but he was certainly, you know, with all the publicity, they, this big, like, eight hours on Radio 1 that, that, that they'd managed to secure, which was a bit of a coup. They, they, were, they were really pushing him and publicising him as a as a person and, and his history. Oh, Richard and, Ogden smashing it at this point as a manager. He really is. Yeah, and we're definitely even though we didn't maybe know it at the time, we are on that downward slope of Paul's singles charts career, mm-hmm. which, kind, which kind of finished with No More Lonely Nights. It was really, there was Pipes of Peace, No More, Pipes of Peace was number one, No More Lonely Nights, I think was probably top five in the UK. And then after that, he's not really, he's not getting big singles after that. Ferry across the Mersey might count. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he he has to yeah it has to be connected to a tragedy for him to get a number one after after that point. So, uh, but yeah, my brave face. It was. I mean, I certainly maybe I remember it as a big single because I was becoming McCartney fanboy at the time. That's probably why. I don't know whether any of my mates would be would particularly remember it. Your ex does though. <laughs> <laughs> Sick to death of it. Yes. So yeah, that you can see him working. You can see him working a lot on this song with trying to get the harmonies right. And this is the bit where 
the sort of talking about that bit. Take me to that place, and he it's says, "You know, Beatles, it's really yeah. me and John." Uh, so he he knows what he's doing. He's he knew exactly what he was doing, saying that in that documentary. Uh, but but yeah, it's it's true, and and I think a lot of that was driven by Elvis Costello, who who fan, who fancied being involved in something a little bit like that. But you, you could certainly see them working on because because this was this was after the album was recorded. I've, I don't think there's any information available that says when this documentary was recorded, but I have little doubt that it's after the album was finished and they were getting ready to mm-hmm. uh, rehearse for the tour. Well, there's an album version of Distractions that we're going to come across later. It's it's the yes. exact version. So I would I would oh. presume you're correct there. Yeah. I will I will say there's a bit of a difference to the album version when we get to it. A little <gasps> oh bit. Of God, a folks, he's just coming on this podcast to make a fool of me. I knew it. <laughs> no, no. I knew it's it. It's a slightly oh. different mix to the album. Let's put it like that. But we'll we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. So yeah, um, we actually come to the title card now and. Andrew, I love title cards that are in camera and it's printed on a set, you know, either for an actor or a director. Yeah. And it's got no fanfare. It just, you're just listening to the McCartney audio dialogue that you're listening to before. It's like, oh, by the way, this is called Put It There. Yeah. I love a good Saul Bass or James Bond opening title sequence. Don't get me wrong, but (laughs) I, I did appreciate the simplicity there. It was really nice. And again, in 1989, this looked really classy. Um, it's like a sort of a red font, isn't it, with a nice border outline, and it just mm. it just looked pretty nice. I, I think, um, yeah, it's probably with what you're saying about Jeff Wanfor. I think he did pull out a really nice looking documentary for this. Again, much nicer than it has any right to be, considering the probably lack of interest the uh, production company would have had in actually putting it together. Yeah. Then McCartney talks about my brave face again, uh, getting the old Hofner bass out. I love it when he says. It's not very good at keeping in tune. I yeah. don't know why that's just a, a McCartneyism to me, just the way he said yeah. that. Yeah, because he talks about it being Elvis who persuaded him, doesn't he, to, to get the Hofner out. And you can see there's little clips that are throughout this, um, especially towards the end where you, where you see them <clears throat> rehearsing stuff early on, where you can cl- clearly see that Paul isn't using the Hofner, he's using his Rickenbacker. Mm-hmm. So it must have been the case that probably Paul started off using the Rickenbacker that maybe that was his go-to bass at the time and then at some point Elvis has probably said to him you know why don't you get that out so you can kind of see that play out when you when you know when you know the content of this documentary and the fact that that bit of him rehearsing with Elvis was actually probably a year or so before or maybe two two years before yeah when you know that you can sort of see well yes that the fact that he's playing a different bass to what Elvis told him to play kind of fits because this was probably before that bit happened so yeah that's interesting to see and i think this is also around about the time at this point where paul also says um that they'd taken more care over this album which mm. is quite interesting but him almost sort of saying that we didn't take care on previous albums which i'm sure can't be the case but so yeah he says uh, he says i don't want to be stuck out in america somewhere plugging an album you don't like and you think, <coughs> press uh, the play. Yeah, that, that you, you can you can see what's going through his mind there about uh, you, you can kind of tell what albums. I mean, in 1989, I wouldn't have known what albums he was talking about there, but uh, it's watching it now. You can you can definitely paint a picture in your own mind of what he was thinking there. Yeah, thank God they didn't just do one take like with Mumbo or anything. How brave is it to bring out your band that follows the Beatles? 
and for your first two tracks to be mumbo and bit bop the ball <laughs> the balls of that man to do that incredible wildlife is so underrated i've actually grown to love mumbo over over the years yeah but for me the highlight track will always be love is strange really yeah the feeling of pure joy i had when mccartney's vocal finally starts about a minute and a half in yeah it takes a while doesn't people it? like i was like oh this is this is so mellifluous this is so <laughs> sublime oh it's great yeah brilliant uh at this point i've realized andrew that i'm not really paying attention to the film i'm just paying attention to mccartney's nose rubs and uh you knows <laughs> i mean apart from the 1980 vinyl interview this is probably the go-to piece of media if you want to get your McCartney impression down. Oh, it's great. It really is. Yeah, and, and on that on that point, this is probably, as far as I know, and again, whether anybody can uh, correct me here on this, he mentions at this point, when he's talking about work, working with Elvis, he comes out with one of his classic interview lines that he's come out with so many times since, but I think this might be the first time that we ever hear Paul say, you know, I'd come out with a line like, it's getting better all the time. And, and then John, John would say, couldn't yeah. get much worse. And he's, you know, how many hundreds of times every interview now, it's like, well, when's he going to do, when's he going to talk about getting better? When's he going to talk about <laughs> the parrot on his shoulder during Hey Jude? And, and, but as far as I know, this is the first time, the first instance of him ever saying that, that I ever saw. And I've never, se- I've never seen anything since that was, that was recorded before this. That's so interesting. Like, patient zero of the McCartney anecdotes, you know? Yeah. If I ever had dinner with him, I would just have to sit and say, look, Paul, I know that John said you're not removing the movement you need is on your shoulder. I know that. Please talk to me about Magneto and Titanium, Anne. Uh, Do you think he'd remember anything about it? Um, Yeah, so uh, which one was the Crimson Dynamo? Is he in the X-Men? No, Paul, no! (laughs) Serious question. How cynical are you about all of his persona and stories? Like, are you taking it all at face value here? Or are you, in the back of your mind, working out what he's really saying and what the publicity spiel is? Or is it second nature for you at this point? It's tough because I, I, it's, it's almost impossible to consider how much is packed into his brain in terms of memories. And we know that they get muddled sometimes. And sometimes he'll come out with a story that... Um, any Beatles fan will know can't actually physically can't be true. So it's quite difficult, but I think I'm not going to criticize him because there's so many memories in there that how, how can they all be stored properly in order? And how many is he not allowed to talk about that? He might accidentally start talking about and then a publicist goes, yeah, I mean, the the one that he did a a few years back that always tickled me was when he was, uh, he was talking about, he was asked to sort of name a, a particular memory that he had. And he said, uh, he says, I always remember when we were in, um, we were in a chalet in Austria when we were filming Help. And uh, there was me and John in this chalet in Austria. And we had a record player and we were listening to an acetate of Here, There and Everywhere. And you just think, oh, that, can't, that can't have happened. <laughs> That's almost as bad as when he started playing too many people and said, this is for the Wings fans. Yeah, oh, I think Paul... Paul has a different idea of what Wings is to what the album credits have. Wings Greatest is the example there, if you need any further proof. And Wingspan as well, which goes up to about 1984. (laughs) Does it? I think 
Oh, isn't, so it includes, maybe, but maybe that's because Denny was involved in Pops of Peace. Maybe so. I think Paul Paul has his own opinion of what Wings is, and it doesn't necessarily tally with what we see on album credits. Imagine if we went up to Paul and were like, oh, Paul, <clears> I, lo- I love that Beatles album, All Things Must Pass. I've got my <laughs> own opinion of what the Beatles are. It might be different to yours, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, um, a lot of these stories have become the story is the truth because it's been said that many times, mm. but uh, whether jo- whether John ever did, I mean, I, I, you can imagine John going, couldn't get much worse. It sounds like a John kind of thing, doesn't it? So uh, I've, I've never had cause to doubt that, but yeah, I'd like to hear some different stories. Oh, the fact that we're never going to get a definitive answer about Eleanor Rigby and in my life is probably going to cause civil wars in the future. You know? Yes. Yeah, so it's difficult. It really is. Um, and the, these are old memories, and it's uh, they must be difficult to store. I, I get I get my own life wrong quite often. I know, so I can't really blame him if he does as well on his own. Then we come to the demo recording of My Brave Face. The second time we see it, we actually get to see Elvis Costello sing. And for someone who was kind of unceremoniously not really included all that much on the final album, especially in terms of vocals mm-hmm. until the archive release, it, 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 this must have been killer footage for everyone back in the day. I imagine so. I mean, I, I, I wasn't particularly an Elvis Costello fan. I didn't, I didn't follow him at all. So I imagine for the Elvis fans, it was great. I, I doubt he got on primetime tv documentaries very often <laughs> but uh, i really I, I love some of those demos that they were doing at the time so yeah the my, my brave face when he's he's bashing it out on the uh on the acoustic guitar and paul's there in, in the booth with his bass there's also on, on the archive collection there's uh, like some extended footage of all this which is really good where you see uh you see elvis playing i think it's my brave face again but then you've got paul on keyboards just bashing out this really sort of really loud harsh keyboard riff all the way through it and them doing things like tommy's coming home which was why why that didn't make the album i have no idea Uh, that that is a strange decision we needed we needed motor of love we needed that Mm, that well Mm. motor of motor of love is if if i was to name my three most hated Paul McCartney songs and uh, Motor of Love is is a shoo-in for that. Is that just because it is literally the most ridiculous concept for a Paul McCartney song ever? <laughs> uh, that, that and it's hideous. <laughs> Why couldn't US... I always pronounce... Everyone laughs at me. I know they do. I cannot pronounce this song correctly. US... US... Uwe. Uwe. Le Soleil. Uwe Le Soleil. That should, that should have ended the album. Oh, it's fantastic. And it, it, it annoys me that that's not on the vinyl version. So it's on the CD, but not on the vinyl. Thank so, God it's on the um, figure of eight uh, B-side, at least. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think I've got about eight different versions of Uela Sole. 
Uh, it's crazy. But whenever I listen to Flowers in the Dirt on vinyl, it's always a major disappointment to mm-hmm. me that Uwe La Sole does not finish the album. Because the album that I grew up on has Uwe La Sole at the end. The, the cassette and the CD. Yes. So I got the original probably the day it came out. and But I didn't pick up the highlight album until probably about five or six years ago. I went through a bit of a phase where if there was any any versions that had any different edits of anything, and then I, I was just sort of hoovering them up for a pound on eBay. Uh, so I did I did get the highlights just because... Um, this, just because? Yeah, yeah. yeah well, well, just because. Just because this weird part of me needed to have it. Not for... I, I can't remember if there was anything... Is All My Trials on there? Because I've, yeah, I've got... the uh, unique track, I believe. Right, well, I, I've got the two All My Trials singles. <laughs> so... <clears throat> I, I, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have uh, seeked out the highlights album at the time for all my trials because I had it anyway. No, um, I showed my friend recently that I'd bought a third copy of the Russian album, and he was like, yeah. "Sam, Sam, you're insane. You're an insane person." What? <laughs> and I'm like, "But it's pink. It's pink, yeah. and it's what missing. The, and it's missing the best song. I'm going to be a wheel someday." I was thinking of summertime. <gasps> oh, that's a nice dichotomy we have already good nice opposites there uh yeah then we get some more comparisons to john and elvis i thought he was going to talk about that they're quite physically similar because there's that quip he makes about them both wearing glasses but um it, it was yeah. nice to see that he goes into the actual song songwriting process at uh-huh. least yeah then we come on to the tour rehearsals of my brave face again this is kind of like more like a mid-performance yeah I've got to ask you a nice question here. Mm. Do you think Linda's playing in any of this footage? I imagine she is, but it must have been such a relief to her at this point to have wicks there. <laughs> for, for various reasons. I mean, firstly, obviously, so that he can handle the, the tricky stuff and she can just bash out a C chord or something. But also, I, I got the impression that Linda and wicks really got on very, very well. 
and he must have been just a great support for her rather than, you know, if she needed to know, well, how do I, how do I play this or how do I play that? Rather than having to go to Paul That's all so the true. time. That that yeah. she that that she could she could get that from Wix, and I'm and I'm sure probably Wix part of Wix's job description was sort, see, sort see Linda out. through this, yeah. yeah. And I think to this day Wix has a lava lamp that he has on stage next next to him, that's um, like his memory of Linda. It's there really? for Linda. Yeah. Oh my God, that's so touching. Wow. Yes. So I think, um, yeah, I think, I think I think there's definitely Wix and Linda were, was a good partnership. She could probably concentrate on doing the things that she was comfortable with. Yeah, when I had the rather notorious author Jeffrey Giuliano on the show, he, in no uncertain terms, just declared that everything was programmed prior for Linda, and she's just pretending to touch keys. I'm not <laughs> sure how true that is, mm. but I don't. I don't think Linda would have accepted that. Yeah, I mean, she played, I mean, as simple as it is, she's there going dun, da, 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 dun, da, da, yeah. on wildlife, you know, that's still her. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, I mean, she, she'd, been, she'd been in a massive band touring the world for, what, sort of seven years or so on and, on and off. She must have learned a fair amount during the 70s. It's not like he's making a do Maybe I'm Amazed solo or the, no. or the you know, anything, anything like that. As funny as that might be. Uh, <laughs> take it yeah. away, Linda! Yeah. yeah. She, so, has, uh, she has to like a jazz piano solo or something. <laughs> or uh, Riders on the Storm. You know. <laughs> yeah, she, I, think, I think Linda, yeah, it's, her, her and Wicks definitely worked well together. But yeah, that, that version of My Brave Face, it's, it's good to see them working it up in the studio. But it's interesting, again, the fact that you know that the album's been made at this point, but they're still clearly... They're, they're really trying to nail it and, uh, and make sure they can get it right live. Because I yeah. suppose, it, cause I, I, I mean, I've, I've been in a few recording studios and done bits and pieces, and there's a massive difference between doing 20 takes of something and getting it right eventually so that it can go on a record than actually standing in front of an audience mm-hmm. knowing, knowing that you can do it. He's, no, but he's probably got, you know, horrible memories of the 1979 Wings tour, though. You know, he's like, I'm never going unprepared on tour again. Yeah. You know, yeah. Even though there is extensive footage of them rehearsing for the Japan tour that never happened, but yeah, definitely Paul has still got a bit of back to the egg PTSD for sure. Yeah, definitely. And there's a bit, there's a bit at this. Well, there's a bit at this point again where he says something. Um, he, he carries on talking about sounding like the Beatles. I think it's again when when they've been doing My Brave Face and that mm-hmm. and that little bit that sounds like him and John. And I never quite knew in what context he meant what he says here, because he says um, he says about sounding like the Beatles, and he says, "Well, you know, if anyone's allowed to do it, it's got to be us. me and the lads." <laughs> and, he, and he sort of points backwards with it with his thumb when he says the lads. And I've st- still to this day, I'm not quite sure whether the lads, like Hamish, Robbie, and and those that are back in the studio, or whether he's pointing at George and Ringo. I'm sure I've read that quote elsewhere in direct reference to George and Ringo. That's right. where I'm going to chuck my one pound bet in that direction. I'm not a gambling man, yeah. but if yeah. I was, I'd guess he meant them too. Yeah. It's just the way he says, and the lads. And yeah. like, who, who do you mean by the lads? Yeah. Sure. You can't call Ringo the lads. He's older than you. Yeah. So um, I kind of went the other way and thought he's probably talking about him and the band. If anybody's allowed to do it, it's me and the guys that I'm working with. But then you think, if he did mean that, well, that's a bit harsh on George and Ringo. They're allowed to sound like the Beatles as well. That's very interesting. 
God, there's so many questions I've got to ask Paul when I eventually <laughs> find his email somehow and hack it. Yes. We move then on to Trevor Horn and Steve Lipson and the production of Rough Ride and how mm. he didn't want to take three months to uh, produce a single. Are they referring yeah. to Relax there? I think they're, they're definitely talking about one of the Frankie singles and you'd imagine, you'd imagine probably it's Relax. Or Two Tribes then. Yeah, I was, yeah. I was kind of... I'm I'm the perfect age, and I mean to within a year. I'm the perfect age for Frankie Goes to Hollywood, and that uh, was like a, a, a one album wonder, wasn't it? Yeah, like it, it was one year of just Frankie Goes to Hollywood, and then you never saw him again. Yeah, and I was kind of I was like the only kid at school who didn't like Frankie Goes to Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> Relax, okay, you know. Yeah, I just thought I, I just I just just didn't do anything for me at all. So yeah, it was. He didn't want to get bogged down doing something like that, which you can understand from the the guy who the first album he made was made in a day. I've got that written down in my notes as well, Andrew. Right, <laughs> yes. Uh, well, I didn't. I just thought of it just then. Oh, God, um, oh, stop but, making me look silly. But, yeah, Rough, Rough Ride's an interesting one on here. Um, I, I like the way that Paul sort of plays just a little jam of it on his guitar for a few seconds just to sort of show how simplistic it was and how little of an idea they had to work with. I think he kind of shoots himself in the foot a little bit there because like, and even he kind of insinuates that I probably should have picked a different song to demonstrate on camera. Yeah, maybe so. And, but, th- and then it, then it cuts to it. Very good demonstration, wasn't it? I could do that again, you know, if you know. <laughs> Second thought. see on the documentary of them doing Rough Ride. Uh, I think it's really interesting the close-ups that you see of Robbie and the chords that he's playing to get that. It certainly made me think, for example, when I was when I was watching this last week again for the hundredth time, I'm thinking, oh yeah, I'm, I'm going to try and play those chords and see if I can get that sound. Uh, but I think it's a really nice version. I think this is a song that kind of overachieves in the era. I think in terms of, because it is, it's just it, it is a deep cut. Let's make no bones about it. Uh, there's not a single non-Paul McCartney fan in the world who's who who knows of the existence of this song. Probably, it is the bit bop of Flowers in the Dirt, especially yeah. since it is the second song as well. And to to get such a prominent role here, where you hear a, a real good chunk of the song, for it to follow Jet right near the start of uh, of Tripping the Life, fantastic. I think it's yeah. I think it's overachieved in life as this song, but I I personally like Rough Ride. It's uh, it's a bit of the album I look forward to, but I just think yeah, it's it's done very well for itself here. It's like that person who's become a millionaire without having any talent to achieve it. It's it's done pretty well for itself. Yeah, 
I love the Tripping the Life Fantastic version as well. Like it's one of it's one of the many songs that sounds better than the album version. Yeah. Then they go on to talk about one of the other collaborations, Figure of Eight. Yeah. And how he wanted a stronger sound for that. Which is weird because the weakest mix of that song ends up on the album. Yeah, there's a lot of versions of this song, isn't there? Um, obviously, you've got the, what you hear on this documentary, where I, where I um, mentioned they've got like this blue wash that they put over the screen that I always really liked for no obvious reason. There's, there's single versions, album versions, live versions, Maxi B-side singles, versions. Yeah. yeah, I've got I've got the lot. I'm sorry, it's another song I've got a lot of versions of. Have you got the etched single? Yeah, I, th- I think I've got them all. I've got a little mini wow. single, mini three-inch disc. I've got I've got a lot of versions. <laughs> and, and, yeah. So I really like Figure of Eight as a song. Um, again, I, I, I wouldn't use the overachieving tag here, but I was surprised when it was used to open the show and open the album. You're not alone there. I think yeah. everyone was surprised, you know. Yeah. He'll open, he'll open with Sergeant Peppers, obviously. Yeah. I, I did see Paul on this tour. My first Paul McCartney show was... I don't think I've mentioned this yet. My first Paul McCartney show was... I think it was, it was either the 8th or 9th of January 1990 at the Birmingham NEC. So you saw Inner City Madness then? Well, unfortunately, I don't remember a great deal about the show. It was, it was only a few weeks after that I came to the realization that I was completely blind and needed glasses. So I didn't. So I didn't. <laughs> I thought really, you were going to say blind drunk. <laughs> so I didn't really see anything of. The, I have no visual memory of the show at all because I couldn't see anything. <laughs> but I didn't realize that my eyesight was that bad, and it was. Um, it was kind of a, a disappointment when I stepped into the arena because it was my first it was my first occasion where I'd gone to a show and the standing area was all seats. Oh no. And that's always it's like, oh God, that's that this is the audience they're expecting. You know, we we have to we have to sit down on the floor of an arena. Um so it immediately sort of makes you think that you're at an old man's show, I think, doing that. So, but, but I, I don't want to say, I, I, I don't want to diss the show because, you know, this was my first show. This was my first time seeing Paul McCartney, even though I couldn't actually see him and I will treasure it forever. But I've got better memories of seeing Paul McCartney live than that. Uh, what other times have you seen him then? So I saw him in Liverpool on the 1st of June, 2003, which was the last leg of that world tour. 
and it, uh, that was so great. It was down on the it was King's Dock. I think it's all built on now. I think I think that might be roughly where the arena is now in Liverpool. Yes, I think I may have stayed in one of those shitty built on the on the uh, waterfront flats whilst yeah. my whilst my girlfriend at the time went to a Lana Del Rey concert and I snuck out and went to the cavern. Yeah, well, good choice, well played. <laughs> so yeah, I went I went to that, which was great because it was it was end of the tour. It was in Liverpool, and he just bust out things like uh, Honey Hush. And various things. He said, oh, yeah, we used, to, we used to do this down the road at the cavern. <laughs> I just, oh, this is fantastic. So, yeah, saw him there in Liverpool. I then saw him in Sheffield. And it was, it was the first time he'd ever done Getting Better live in the UK. Wow. Now, Getting Better is one of my top ten Beatles songs. And unfortunately, we were right on the back row, so we were a long way away. But that... I I had a little cry at that point, I'm going to admit, because it was a beautiful moment. Seeing one of my favourites, him do that song for the first time ever in this country was uh, a bit much for me. And then I saw him at Anfield uh, when he headlined the European City of Culture in uh, June 2000, or end of May or beginning of June 2008. That's the last time I saw him, actually. But Mm. um, it was right up near the front, me and my cousin right up near the front. Uh, that, That was great. And... It was it was really weird because it had been really, really thick, dark clouds all day. It was threatening to absolutely throw it down. And a few minutes before Paul walked on stage, the clouds parted. Oh. And you just think... Good day, sunshine. Yeah. Well, you think, I've, I've heard about these chemicals that can be put into clouds. Is, <laughs> is McCartney controlling the weather in Liverpool tonight? I wonder. And I, I don't know. But I mean, it, was, it was very suspicious. He might have the rain stick that Keith Richards has that always stops 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 the rain, you know. Yeah, it was it was just it was just a bit too perfect to be real. <laughs> no, uh, I can remember going into see McCartney in 2018, thinking I'm not going to go wow at the explosions in Live and Let Die, <laughs> and I'm not going to cry when he does Yesterday, and I did both of those things immediately. Yeah, and I was waving my hands with Hey Jude. And, you know, I hate his stagecraft, but when he pointed at my section of the audience to go, yeah, 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 you can bet your ass I said, yeah, 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 yeah. Of course you did. Of course you did. you got to do. you got you got to do. And since it was the, the last show of the tour, not only did he do Wonderful Christmas Time, but Ringo and um, ah. Ronnie Wood came out as well. Ah, brilliant. That's great to see him and Ringo. I mean, we, we knew at the, the 2008 Liverpool show, we knew that... Uh, it was rumoured that there was going to be a special guest appearing with him. So we'd been sort of scouring the internet and music magazines to see who's who's in the country at the moment, who's who's on <laughs> who's on tour. And we'd kind of narrowed it down to Neil Diamond. I'm thinking, surely I can't, I can't see that it'd be Neil Diamond, but that's all I could figure out it was going to be. And it turned out it was it was um, I think the first time that him and Dave Grohl appeared on stage together. Oh, it's just. Dave Grohl in my head as like a weird yeah. throw, throwaway answer. I can't fucking believe that. It was so Dave Grohl. That's Dave amazing. Grohl came on. He did, he did one song on drums. I can't remember. What was it? Might have been back in the USSR. I can't quite remember. And then I think it was Band on the Run where he came and played guitar at the front with Paul. And you just, the joy on his face, how happy he was to be there doing that made it just perfect. You can tell Dave Grohl's a huge Beatles fan, not only oh, because he, he, he defends Ringo's drumming at every turn, but his favourite songs, Hey Bulldog, 
that means you're a deep cut Beatles fan. Like yeah. he didn't say, "Oh, I like Let It Be." He's like, "I love that one rocker off the album no one likes." Yes, yeah. Dave Grohl. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Good for you. So yeah, I've had some good fun seeing uh, seeing Paul live, including Figure of Eight at the beginning of that show in Birmingham. When everyone went, huh? Yeah, yeah what's I this? Can... I, I didn't expect to be going for a toilet break at this point in the show. Oh, you know, I call it the My Valentine break. Because <laughs> I'm not going to lie, there was about 50 of us at the toilet during, during, during that moment. And really? the kiosk stands were all full. <laughs> then we come on to uh, Paul discussing the fact that the Beatles are on CD now, which is a fantastic little time capsule moment like oh the Beatles are on CD now you know yep yep and okay. then we come on to things we said today which yep. would also appear on Tripping the Life Fantastic little rendition of this one but he actually does change it slightly which is interesting to see like we yeah. already talked about changing the pitch and how rarely he does that but um, yeah. it's kind of reminded me you know when on wings over america he really does a, a really shitty version of i've just seen a face and completely changed the tempo yeah here he does the kind of the same thing without ruining the song yeah it's interesting version i i wouldn't have known this song when i before I saw it on this documentary, because I didn't start really buying Beatles albums until the following year. So I'd never heard of this song. I just knew that it was one that he was introducing as an old Beatles song. And that was as much as I knew about it. So so I kind of got to know this version and this this sort of quite loose arrangement of it before I ever knew, before I ever heard A Hard Day's Night. So I, I, I completely came at it the, the other way around, really. I tell you what. With Hamish's vocal being as strong as it is, I would have loved to have heard I'll Be Back on this tour. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is the thing, and it's, there's just too many songs for him to build in. And it's, uh, has there ever been anybody in history who can just leave out as big a songs as, as, as he leaves out? I mean, you think of something like She Loves You. It's, it's still one of the biggest selling songs has ever been in this country and probably in many countries. And he never does that song live and nobody bats an eyelid. 
And he, he's got lots of million selling songs that he could just leave out of a concert and nobody would bat an eyelid. I just wish he had the, not bravery, because it, it, it's not that. I just have a bit more faith in his fan base. Like, n- the next tour, no mm. Let It Be, no Long yep. and Winding Road, no Hey Jude, no Closing Medley, no Live and Let Die, yep. no Let Me Roll It. And yeah. we'll just see what that. happens, you know? I'd love that. I, that that's, that's the one thing that would get me buying another ticket to one of his shows. I'm going to do Babies in Black followed by So Bad. What? <laughs> yeah, Morse Moose and the Grey Goose. I want that in there. Don't play with my heart there, Andrew. Don't <laughs> play... If he played Morse Moose and the Grey Goose, even with his shot voice, even if, you know, like, you know, at the end of Deep Down where he can kind of fake the gruff voice. Yeah, yeah. If he did that, if, if I walked into the stadium and all I heard was... <laughs> I think I'd have a heart attack. <laughs> It would. Be, it would. I would. I would love to. I would love to write a Paul McCartney set list and say, "This is what you're doing. Get it learned. Get it learned." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. All right, Andrew. You know. <laughs> just. Just think of me as the bassist in the band. You know. Yeah. Now that that would be that would be great. So yeah, things we said today, like I say, I got to know this version on this documentary before any other. So uh, yeah, but like you say, this is this is kind of the section where we're doing tour rehearsals. He does. I saw a standing there. Yeah, and, and he, an even earlier track, and uh, he basically says, you can't really recapture the magic of the Beatles, and then it immediately cuts to a rendition of The Long and Winding Road, where they kind of capture the magic of the Beatles. Yeah. So- His, I love his quote that he says there. He says, you can't reheat a souffle. <laughs> that's, uh, that's the middle class uh, Paul coming, at, coming out there. Yeah. You know, as, a, as a Linda says, you know, you can't reheat a pheasant. Oh, really, Paul? <laughs> okay. A soy, a soy pheasant or something, you know? Yeah. The other thing I noticed about, and, and I, was sort of, I particularly looked at this time because it's, it's the period of the documentary where he's, he's rehearsing for the tour. So I was, I was looking through the set list and it sort of struck me that from that point there, of, of everything that came from 1975, six onwards, there are only two songs make it into this set list from the whole of that period, and that's Coming Up and Ebony and Ivory make it into the Trip in the Life Fantastic. Um, you don't you don't see either of those being rehearsed here, but it's just like he's you know we've got some band on the run tracks, and then that's it apart from. So he ignores so many albums. And was that a very deliberate thing? I don't know. Yeah, it's either Toronto or some other place. He just says, like, yeah, you know, I was just thinking, what would I like to see if I went to a show? And I'm like, oh, Paul, you're the worst person to, to like, use that kind of logic on because you've got the most varied, demanding fan base of all time. And he practised with a little look, with wings, like, come on. Give us with give us with a little luck or something. I'd love, I'd love to have seen that song. Good night, like, good night yeah. tonight. Wow, 
with the lumpy trousers band. <laughs> Come on. All hair slicked back. Oh. Yeah, I mean that would have been great. So yeah, that's that's um it's it's weird that he's rehearsing for a tour and he's pretty much, apart from two songs, ignoring the whole of the previous fifteen years. Also, something that bugged me at this point in the doc, I was like, "Oh, we're not getting any interviews with the band, are we?" Ah, oh, that's a shame. Mm. No, you don't hear. No, <laughs> you don't hear. You don't even hear Linda talking, do you? Uh, it's um, mm. it's probably a missed opportunity. And if this didn't have to be truncated to a single hour, there would have definitely been room for that. But I'll bring up this point shortly again. I don't mind this song on Flowers in the Dirt. I think it's, it's kind of a, on the one hand, I want to say it's a nice little song, but then when you hear Paul talking about sort of who he dedicated it to and the kind of thinking behind it, like how many people have got to die before we take some action, it's quite a heavy, deep song, actually. So, yeah, he mentions that, and it's dedicated to Chico Mendes, one of the yeah. ad- advocates for the indigenous peoples of South America. And yeah. they say the song is dedicated to him. I've, I've, I've scoured my entire copy of Flowers in the Dirt with a magnifying glass. I cannot see his name on that album <laughs> anywhere. Is it just a vocal dedication? Because um, I, I can't find any actual official... I think it was, I think it was, yeah, I think it was just, uh, you know, this a is... shout out. The, the, in terms of the context of the song, this is the kind of person who were thinking about, you know, somebody who tried to make a difference and got shot. How many people are going to have to go through this before things get better? You can't tell me John wasn't in his head as well when that song was being written. Wow. Interesting. In what way? How, how many people, you know? How many people oh. will, it, will it take? Mm, well, uh, yes, sorry. Yeah, good point. Hadn't thought of that before, I'll be honest. I also liked Paul's uh, musings over the next song as well, That Day Is Done.
Yes. And it's a song about regrets and how we all redo past scenarios and arguments in our head. I was like, Paul McCartney's human. He goes over his regrets in his head as well. That makes me feel much better. So thank you for uh, humanising yourself a bit there, Paul. Well, I don't know whether this is the case or not, but my understanding is that this is pretty much all an Elvis Costello song. I believe. A bit like how Back On My Feet is 98% Paul. Mm, I think this is pretty much an Elvis Costello song that ended up being Paul who did it. That's interesting. Yeah. and But of course, that, that song as well gives us the title of the album in the lyric. Took me ages to figure that out, by the way. I just down about <laughs> 10 times before I heard, she leaves flowers in... He said the title! Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not, and it's it's not, not the, the chorus the or anything, is it? It's yeah. just... It's just hidden away in one line of the song somewhere. Yeah. Uh, so that, I, I that, think, that, I'm sorry. Um, it'd be like calling Pipes of Peace dustbin lid. <laughs> yes, exactly. So yeah, yeah, it's a good song. It's quite a heavy song, and I think lyrically, uh, it doesn't surprise me if it is pretty much all an Elvis Costello song. Interesting. I'm going to have to do more research on that one. I think uh, yeah. But we've had a lot of truncated performances so far. Mm. And finally, we come on to a song that, in my opinion, deserves to be played in full. Mm. Of course, I'm talking about this one. If you want proof that this song might be a bit too complicated and this is kind of the revolver Sergeant Pepper equivalent to Solo McCartney, you don't need to look any further than the fact that Linda has been relegated to the tambourine. <laughs> and, and, it's, and it's a song about their relationship as well. Uh, she's very much uh, kind of the focus of this one. But I think this is one of Paul's great pop songs of the era. Uh-huh. This is one of those that if it had been released... A, a different time if he'd have if he'd have written this song and sung it in this kind of style in the mid 70s it would have been a number one smash mm-hmm. in britain in america all over the place it get rid great, of the note you never great, wrote put this on speaker yeah. sound oh my god yeah this is a great pop song and i won't be swayed on that and i get the impression you're not <laughs> going to try and sway me on that nope 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 <laughs> um what uh, i always try to avoid other podcasts opinions on albums i've never come across but I remember about five years ago, I heard Robert Rodriguez and Richard Buskin agree that this is an amazing song. And I thought, fucking hell, they're agreeing on a Paul McCartney song. I've got to go check this out. Yeah. And the rest, as they say, is history. But I do maintain that this song was too complex for them to do live. And yeah. it's not satisfying on the Tripping the Life Fantastic album at all. No, I certainly prefer the version here on this documentary to watch yeah. the album. I think this is a real nice version. It's... Th- 
I think I think it's a bit slower. It feels a bit more relaxed. Which is weird because normally when McCartney judges up a song for the live audience, something like mm. "You Gave Me the Answer," he normally cranks it up by about fifteen yeah. percent. And unless it was kind of, it, it might have been that this was recorded early days in the tour rehearsals. Maybe they'd played it a lot recording it, separate tracks, but maybe they hadn't played it live together much at this point. I don't know. Yeah. And um, you, you can't forget that this did start out as a song on the um, Return to Pepperland sessions. Mm-hmm. And my God, is the final product so much better than that. This is one of the top examples of Paul please revisit the songs you don't finish because normally when you do you make them even better yes. Water Spout better be on McCartney 4 Beautiful Night being another example yes uh, probably a good thing that he left it several years <laughs> and we ended up getting a great song off the back of it but uh, yeah it's a really really good song this one and and, and I know we're kind of we're right in the, this period of the documentary that we're in this is the this is the new song section. This is this is uh, this is showing songs that are going to be on Flowers in the Dirt, mm. and I kind of I, well, I made a list of the ones that the songs that are on Flowers in the Dirt that didn't get featured in this documentary at all, and I think sort of largely he kind of made the right decisions, but there's just one particular song on the album that I think is missing that we should got have married. been married. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> Maybe they couldn't... It could be a rights issue with Dave Gilmore. Maybe. You know, something something like that. Because like, you always see it on old albums. Appears courtesy of. Yeah. But then presumably Robbie learned all those parts because he would have been playing it live. They didn't They didn't sample in Dave Gilmore for the live shows, did they? Yeah. So, sorry. so maybe it wasn't ready. Maybe it took more learning. Because I think this that song had been around a while anyway, hadn't it? The, well, there was also... Um, a music video shot but never released so yeah. maybe the intention was people will be introduced to it through the music video and there's no need to put it in here but then again my brave face had a, and this one had music video so possibly not maybe so maybe so yeah but i think to me in this this section of the documentary that's focusing on the new songs that's the one that i oh, i would have liked to have seen a bit of we got married in there but hey ho well especially because this is the domestic bliss album Mm. And, um, you know, thematically, it's absolutely perfect. Then we come on to the title track, a song mm. which I received on vinyl not two days ago. Excellent. Andrew, as someone who recently lost their dad, I literally cannot objectively look at this song. Okay. I can't. It just inspires the most raw emotion from me. Even reading 
the liner notes by Jeff Baker on the back saying, you know, fathers would hold their sons' hands and lovers mm. would dance and stuff. Like, why are album liner notes that emotive? Like, Jesus. <laughs> you know, I... I cannot say anything bad about this song. I loved it before that incident yeah. in, my, in my life, but now, yeah, you know, what more can I say? No, that's understood. Because, um, yeah, I mean, Paul talks about it as well, doesn't he? And he's talking about, you know, no hair on a seagull's chest. And he's, he's kind of revisited that thing recently, hasn't he, with Egypt Station, where he'd do it now. He, he sort of said that was one of his, his dad's old sayings. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's a cracking song. It's a really, really beautiful song. Um, the unexpected hit of the period, though, like no one expected it to be a single. No one expected it to be a hit with the Parisian crowds. Yeah. Uh, well, I think the, the the single benefited. I don't know if it benefited in terms of chart placings because it still didn't get high. But no, it didn't. No. The, the, the beautiful little surprise of that there's there's two early 1970s wing songs on the single. Like, why? But thank you. Oh so yeah. I'd, so Mama's Mama's Little Girl and I, I'd never heard Mama's Little Girl until that single came out. I didn't know Same Time Next Year was on the twelve inch. I thought that was an unreleased track entirely. So Right, yeah. Yeah, very interesting indeed. I mean yeah. it's still not as crazy as putting lunchbox odd socks after the <laughs> live version of coming up. That's still I'm like, why are there two B sides on this pool? What is going on here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All I'm saying is Lunchbox Odd Socks probably should have ended Venus and Mars, but we could talk about that another time. Um, yes, I yes. mean, according to my own head canon of that album, it actually starts with my carnival. So, <laughs> <laughs> which uh, people are rolling in their seats right now. They cannot believe I've just said that. But um, was it was it you that suggested that in my live stream last night? Yes, it was. It was you. Yeah. <laughs> Paul or nothing. And, I sh- and I shot that theory down. You shot that down like <laughs> like a Messerschmitt over London, definitely. Yes. <laughs> then we come on to a f- another performance of Put It There, which baffled me. I was like, oh, they're literally playing this again. Thank God it's only two minutes long. And they put the coder at the end, which it's just one of the greatest ideas Paul's had for a little live Easter egg.
could definitely imagine people in the audience when he when he first did it going, hang on, what's <gasps> you know like that? Oh my god, he's doing that. And yeah. I'd love him to, to do stuff like that more, like you know, end a song with "She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah." <laughs> The I only think, time the, uh, I've ever been blown away by an intertextual reference from the Beatles, you know? Yes. I think, well, I mean, he's done a couple of things similar, hasn't he? Like he uh, he finishes Let Me Roll It with Foxy Lady, doesn't he? <laughs> and it's still. still. Still to this day. And the other one, I suppose, in a kind of similar fashion, and on the Amoeba gig, when he does I'll Follow the Sun, mm. and, he just, and he just does this crazy amount of fake endings to I'll Follow the Sun, where he just comes back in with the chorus. And then he even sort of takes his thanks from the crowd. And then 10 seconds later, Abe starts up with the... on the drums, and they come back in again with the, with the end of I'll Follow the Sun. So he likes a little fake ending now and again. Yeah, and uh, I've become obsessed recently with Paul's, like, 30-second renditions of Babyface. I don't know why, but I just love them. Yeah. Then we come on to... Depending on your pronunciation, Snother this is Chobber, or the yeah. Russian album. Andrew, did they not have enough footage or topics to make this all about Flowers in the Dirt? Or are they including this because they knew these songs were going to be included on the tour? I think it could be a little bit of both. I think certainly they have covered Flowers in the Dirt and the making of it a heck of a lot more than what they covered Press to Play in the press to play documentary right so he's already given far more airtime to, to flowers in the dirt by this point but i think yeah i, I suppose if, if he's going out on a a multi-million pound potential tour then featuring some of the stuff that you know, oh you're gonna get to see paul mccartney doing rock and roll fantastic um that could be quite a quite a draw for some people mm-hmm. rather than the, rather than sort of covering 10 songs from flowers in the dirt rather than maybe just covering five of them. So I think, I I think this is, this is definitely an advert for the tour as well.
yourself in the studio. Oh, yeah. I mean, you've got to have silly moments, you know, because it... But, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good little section of the documentary is this. There's some fun to be had here. It was also quite a cool album in Paul's perspective. You know, the idea that it was a bootleg and then it was in demand and people were yeah, yeah. Ship, shipping it back over from the, the uh, USSR. He's definitely throwing a bone for people there. Yeah, absolutely. And he must have enjoyed it so much, I think, to, for, for, that, for, him, for him not just to have decided to make something that he could tour but also for a lot of those songs to then carry forward into it because he could have brought in another half dozen Beatles songs mm-hmm. very, very easily, but he decided to have this rock and roll section. And that must've been, I, th- I think, I think the way I look at it is that both Paul and John turned to rock and roll at times when they felt they had to. Yeah. Stressed. Yeah. I think, I think in John's case, it was potentially, I don't think it was creatively a brilliant time for him. And yeah, it just was, meant that... There was the it, lawsuit as well. Yeah, yeah it was, yes, um, it, was an, it was an easy thing for him to do at the time. And it meant that he could then sort of pack up and go and have a bit of a break. With Paul, I think it's noticeable that the two times that he's done a rock and roll album, <clears throat> one of them is off the back of the most slated creative, uh, commercially received period he's ever had and he needed to get some confidence back mm-hmm. the other time was after linda died and it was like the way that he got back into being able mm. to sing and pick up a guitar again so i i, I mean I, that it might just be coincidence that those are the two times when he's done it but i i think there's some significance there that he's done it at times when it was it was the right thing for him to do at the time i mean how many times do you have to notice that Whenever Paul is sad and things are going quite badly in his life, he seems to produce the best albums. Ram, Band on the Run, McCartney 3 even. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. He needs to put his own back up against the wall, I feel. When McCartney's happy, I'm not happy. Mm. I also think there's a bit of a theory around Paul producing some of his best work at times when the Beatles have just loomed the largest in his life. So whether that's just after the Beatles have split up or whether it's, Flaming um, pie, yeah. yeah, flaming pie has just come off the back of the anthology with this, you know, even talks in here, as you mentioned about, you know, the beat, the CDs have just come out now. Everybody's re-listening to the Beatles cause it's out on CD. So he'd probably been re-listening to it as well. So I think there's also a bit of a correlation between when Paul has had Beatle business in his life that that often then, um, sort of, coincides with him doing something pretty good after that we need to get some statisticians on this podcast now. yeah I might, I might have to get microsoft excel open and do some good graphs on this yeah, we're going to need the people from the big short and margin call to uh, predict future <laughs> markets here yeah so we then get a quick flurry of just because summertime lucille and ain't that a shame for absolutely classic cuts from the Russian album. I just wish yeah. there was more of it, but I'm pretty sure in your version, it probably would have been a bit longer. I think this is where there are some differences here. So uh, he taught right at the start, he talks about his love for Elvis. Yes, which, and, and know, how so he hated him going in the army. And I'm like, yeah. yes, great and point, he, Paul. And he detects a little glint missing from his eye and he does his little Elvis impression there. And then, yeah, it goes into Just Because. And I think this is one of the examples where you see just how fantastic Robbie McIntosh is as a guitarist. Mm. Uh, if you watch Just Because, 
just great sort of country tinged rock and roll guitar. Fantastic. I mean, I, I can sort of play guitar. I wouldn't even know where to begin doing anything like what he does there. No, my, my, my favorite McCartney comment about the Russian album is in the liner notes where it's like, people always forget McCartney is a, a, a lead guitar player, but on cracking up, he really tears it up. And I'm like, all right, calm down. It, it, yeah. it, it, it's only cracking up, you know, yeah. <laughs> calm down there. Yeah. And, and, and also, he plays, the, sorry, he yeah. plays lead on Summertime as well. Do you have Summertime on the, on the shorter version that you watched? It's one of the longest tracks from this medley, actually. Okay, yeah, cool. Because so I think, yeah, he plays lead guitar on that as well, doesn't he? Yeah, it was the second, well, the second day of the rehearsals for, for the Russian album was when he did the lead guitar, so possibly uh, they just carried that tradition on over to yeah. these ones. Yeah. Not quite sure, though. My main takeaway from this from this medley, though, was, oh, this is the worst version of Ain't That a Shame commercially available by Paul McCartney. Wow. Okay. It is. It is. Uh, right. The one off the Russian album's way better. The one off Trip of the Life Fantastics, way better. He this has could, to he has yeah. to shred his vocals. He's, he's got to do the John Twist and Shout thing. And in here, he was quite clearly saving his voice to go to dinner later that evening. Okay. This could be where we have our first big disagreement. Bring it. You think I'm scared of you with your bigger YouTube <laughs> fan base? Do your right. worst, Andrew. No. Do your worst. Right. So ain't that a shame on this documentary, I think... <laughs> is incredible. I really do. This is one of my absolute favourite Paul McCartney live performances of all time. Oh, it's okay. I absolutely love it. I don't know what it just it just grabbed me the first time I saw it. Now I think I'm not sure that you've got the full version of the song there. Possibly not, and I will have to put my hands up there and say, I can't give a fair assessment until I the full version of this movie. Right, okay, yes, which has got the full version. And, yeah, now there might be bits where he can't quite scream it in the way that he could have done 15 years earlier, but I just absolutely love, there's so much energy and that, that he puts into this. It is, it is incredible, I think, is this version of Ain't That Shame. And I don't think he came close to it at any other time. Very interesting. Mm. I mean, for me, in Trip of the Life Fantastic, he goes, I want to cry! Like, he just really lets go. Like, for me, that's Long Tall Sally, Lucille, Paul, yep. and um, I felt like I was missing that just slightly here. I would like to think, if you saw the full version, that you might not think I'm as crazy as you currently think I am. We're going to have to put a pin in that one, ladies and gents. We'll have to do a rematch. Yeah. Uh, it's, or we could just have a, a Twitter war, you know? Yeah. But I, I would I would honestly put that right up near the very, very top of my favourite Paul McCartney live performances ever, oh, is oh. this version here. Oh, all right. Very there you, interesting. <laughs> there you go. Then we cut to Paul discussing the studio recording process, and yep. in the vein of the stoned, giggly version of And Your Bird Can Sing from Anthology 2, mm. we get... Paul and Elvis <laughs> really messing up a take of my brave face and it might be the highlight of the documentary for me. Mm-hmm. 
around about that. Now then, now then, now then. Oh, 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 oh. I'm running the marathon. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. I, I don't know whether there'd been anything happening before this to put them on the edge, but there's just that little bit where... So Paul Paul's there, he's sat on a, on a stool or something with his Rickenbacker bass, playing bass, and he just does this little ooh, run up run up the, ba- up the fretboard <laughs> on his bass, and it just completely cracks Elvis up. And Elvis, you can't see him, because the camera's focused on McCartney. <laughs> of course it is. And McCartney tells him to F off. And uh, they're just having it. Yeah, they're having a real good laugh, and it is very funny. And then I think does it cut to the version where Paul's sort of uh, playing it on a keyboard as well, and he's he's sort of doing shaky wobbly legs. Yeah, it's a funny bit of footage because my bias take is that these weren't particularly pleasant sessions for either Paul or Elvis when they're in the same room together, yeah. and uh, it was the most kind of uh, parallel partnership ever. You know talking about um was it um, one of the songs well it had to be like the human league and elvis had to walk out the room and calm down before he actually told yeah. Paul what, what he thought of such a thing <laughs> it makes me wonder whether this is like you know how peter jackson's being accused of the biggest whitewash of history ever yeah i wonder if this is paul knowing oh, me and elvis didn't end on great terms i'll just use whatever positive footage we have mm. and if this was the only positive thing that happened probably not it, you know, there's probably lots of happy stuff, but this is a, a great example of the lighter side of that collaboration, definitely. Definitely, yeah. And I think they, the, the two of them must have enjoyed it enough that they, they have, they've appeared together on various things. At the since. fucking White House! Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, they, they clearly still get along, and obviously Paul recorded an album with Elvis's wife as well a few years back. So... Yeah, they're, they're st- clearly still on good terms. It didn't end like a, a, a Hugh Padgham kind of thing. Or I mean, singing Warm and Beautiful at the concert for Linda certainly helped. Yeah, you would imagine, yes. Paul moves on to discuss demographics, which is fantastically shot down by him as a question. I don't <sighs> think about demographics. Don't yeah. you, Paul? I don't fully believe that. No, and he says, uh, yeah, because... Uh, Tracy asks him about who the album's targeted at, doesn't she? And he's, yeah, he's like, marketing men, thing like that. He says, I'm hoping to attract anybody like a bloody dung heap, which is quite a nice quote. Yeah. yeah. Not quite sure what he means by that. As in a dung heap, as in attracting dung beetles or something? Uh, well, dung beetles are flies, I was Fla- thinking. Uh, flies, yeah. yeah. That, ma- that, that makes sense. That yes. makes sense. I think that's uh, what he was referring to there. Yeah, and then that's that's like a weirdly sort of short thing. I mean, it's it's probably included in the final edit because it's quite a funny thing when Paul says about it being a dung heap. But other than that, it's a really weird little thirty seconds to have in the documentary that's it's, not related to anything. <laughs> it's a real non non sequitur, isn't it? Yeah. Um, which brings us to something we talked about earlier, something that you mm. needed to address. I recognised the performance of Distractions as being the studio take because. It isn't Paul live with the band, it's him in black and white, just with his bass.
This isn't the top of the pops performance I've per- I've pertained it to be. It's so th- this is the same. Uh, what you hear here is on the album, but the album version is embellished. So there's a little bit partway through where you just hear that there's just a little break between verses where you just hear a little bass run of Paul where he goes dum 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 dum. And then it goes back into the song, whereas on the album that's been covered up with strings and such like. So it's it's kind of like not the final mix of the album of of the song. Okay, why why didn't they just do a band version of this though? I don't know. I mean, I mean, for example, you've got because the band came in at different points. They did they didn't all suddenly start on the same day. Hmm. Maybe this was one of the early things that was done while Paul was still kind of. Because I know Wix didn't come in until later on. Robbie didn't come in until after Hamish had been around a little while. So maybe was it one of the ones that was recorded early earlier on? Well, there is the demo available on McCartney's website, and it is chalk and cheese to the mm. final version. It is yeah. it is a stripped back as any version of Distractions could be. I think it's just him and a bit of percussion, really, a bit, yeah. a bit, a, a, a bit of that uh, Buddy Holly knee knee slapping uh, percussion, you know. Mm. Interesting, but yeah, it's. I think it's. It's a lovely song, for definite, and uh, it is nice. I always think when I when I watch this documentary, I do like that little bit that's different to the album version, where you just hear the little bass run empty. It's. Uh, it's always a nice little reminder that uh, it was still sort of playing around with different versions of it. Oh yeah, like the eighties is the Paul McCartney oh. remix Bonanza, isn't it? It's an absolute nightmare for somebody like me who wants to have every version of a song that's been released when it comes to him. The 80s, I I dread to think how many years of my life I've spent gathering various things and and knowing how to tag them in iTunes. (laughs) It's just an absolute mare. And like for someone like me who hates the single version of Pretty Little Head... I'm going to have to pay £70 for a single that I don't even like because it's so rare, you know. I think, I, think, I think the general consensus is that the single version of Pretty Little Heads were the one to, to listen to. Oh, fuck the consensus. I mean, at least in the 90s, uh, Paul was clever enough to get all versions of Deliverance and all the remixes and just put it on one disc. Yeah, they were not very good though, were they? I love the Steve Sanderson remixes. Oh yeah. <laughs> I can pop that on and just do some writing in the in the background and then, you know, someone in the house will say, oh, what's this? This is good. And I'll say, it's Paul McCartney and then they walk right back out the door. It's nice to do that sometimes, isn't it? To mess with people's... Uh... Secret friend. Yeah. Anything of McCartney too, that's an instrumental. Pop that on. People go, hmm, what's this? 1985 is a good one for that as well. Oh, Okay. I'm definitely going to try with with the younger generation. Then we come on to another stupid question asked by the uh, the interviewer: Is music could music possibly not be in your life? And Mm. he shoots that one down as well. I will play music as long as I'm alive. Yeah, I'm not even interested in that question. So there, Tracy. (laughs) I love how he puts interviewers at ease. You know, he's uh, he's so good at shooting something down politely. Yeah, I I wonder if he 
knew that that question was going to be asked so that he could shoot it down. The worst question he was ever asked is when he's landing in America saying, are you too old to be playing rock and roll anymore? Mm. He was like 34 or something, wasn't he? <laughs> that question has also aged like bread. Yeah. I, I think it's. I think it would be a fair... Even if it was put to Paul now... Um, Paul, back in 1989, you were asked um, if you could conceive of a time when you wouldn't do music. What, would, what do you think to that question now? I think if it was framed like that, I think it's worth asking him the question again to get his current answer to it. I think that applies to a lot of questions, Andrew. That'd be very mm. interesting. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's quite, it's, it's, uh, it is quite funny, his response. You know, I'll, I'll do music as long as I do music. I'll live as long as I live. They're, they're too imponderables. They're so imponderables, I don't even waste time thinking about it. <laughs> it's okay. great. And I think that's the last we hear from him, isn't it, as, uh, in terms of Dialogue. interview. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's then we're then kind of into the final little medley, aren't we, at that point? And I didn't want to have to talk about this song. I thought I was going to get through all of my Flowers in the Dirt coverage without <laughs> having to talk about this until a future Hot Hits and Cold Cuts episode. Yeah. But, well, actually, let me first ask you, did you get the Flowers in the Dirt Japanese tour set? I did. The one that's got the other version of Party Party on. Oh, it's not this version of Party Party, then. think so there's there's there is more than one why is there more than one version of party party this is a song that can't be held down within one version so i'm i'm just looking at my screen now i i have three versions of party party oh my god it's Um, uh, none of them are a party at all we've got the the version uh, party party from the in fact actually i've got i've got more than three versions of this Let's just think. Let's just think about this, because there's, uh, as well as having this version that's on here, so um, yeah, I've got I've, party party from the Flowers in the Dirt World Tour Pack. Yes, I have. I have got that. I've got this that I tend to call the rock version from the Put It There documentary. There's a party party promo edit that came out in 1990 on a US promo disc called Paul McCartney Rocks. There's party party club mix that was in the archive collection and there's the party party bruce forest remix that i've got as a bootleg i'm exhausted after that i'm exhausted folks my gosh this 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 song deserves many versions and yet i still don't have one official version of return to pepperland this is proof (laughs) there is no god absolutely but this this to me this version here 
is the only one that I give any time to, really. I get that. I get that. It's, it is it is just more fun because it's live. Yeah. It's like how the live version of PS Love Me Do gets slightly less flack. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah, and, and you see the band fooling around. It's quite fun as well. It's, it's borderline dad dancing with the... Borderline? <laughs> the incredibly younger than you think he is, Robbie McIntosh, and Hamish sort of putting their, their head on the hands and doing this sort of little head dance thing. It's, it's just a nice little fun way to end the documentary, I think. But just like the album itself, why not end it with Uela Sole, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, that, that, that just doesn't appear at all in this, does it? Those keyboards, when it comes in in the second verse, oh, it's so good. Going back to Party Party, though, mm. I've got an internal conspiracy theory. I love talking heads, and I know that the band loved quad collaboration songs because right. A, it pissed off David Byrne, and B, it meant that everyone got royalties. Now, there's a little part of me that wonders, is this just Paul giving everyone on the album a songwriting credit because it's a jam song and they all get a little royalty forever? Mm, well, maybe so. Uh, it's interesting. It could well be. Um, I mean, you know, it's it's like flying, you know. Ringo will forever get royalty money from Magical yeah. Mystery Tour, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things where I was I was surprised that he did Wings Over America so early in the archive collection because there's quite, there's a fair bit, that you know, Denny Lane songs, and, and he wouldn't have been getting 100% songwriting royalties from that I was, so he can be sort of kind of generous like that now and again yeah so yeah maybe so you know when like you think about when i get to the pearly gates what question will i ask whatever deity is waiting there for me mm. and one of them is how much money did denny lane miss out on with the royalties for mullock entire can i just have a roundabout figure <laughs> i think did, did did paul buy him out on that eventually like a hundred quid in oh, according to God. some sources oh, like, it is but when you go back and listen to the Paul McCartney piano tape from 74, 75, you swiftly realise Denny Lane didn't actually add a lot to this song yeah. at all. No, and I know Paul said, hasn't he, about when there was a quote from him when Denny Lane had been saying something about not having been paid enough and Paul said something like, you know, I've got, I've got receipts that shows that I paid him a million quid. You show me how many other people earned that much money in that time period. We all love Denny on this show. I'm from yeah. Birmingham. You saw Paul in Birmingham. Mm -hmm. I love Denny. Yeah. He, you know, I, I would love to have a cup of Bovril with him one yeah. day. Yeah. But if I was to speak to him honestly, in the way that I'd love to speak to Paul honestly, I would love to sign a non-disclosure agreement and just go to dinner. And like I'll say, like, I, you know, you could sue me for a million pounds if I ever mentioned anything spent here, said, said here tonight. Yeah. And I'd just be like, look, Denny, how much did you fuck up your finances, man? How much was just spent on booze and drugs? Yeah. Or did Paul <laughs> screw you over? Be honest. I think it's the former. Yeah. How much did you spend on booze and drugs and how much did you just waste? Yeah. Yeah. When I watched, the first time I watched Wingspan film, uh, I, I kind of realised that the Denny Lane was far more a star of that film than I was expecting him to be in terms of what he contributed on that stage. It was, it was far more than I expected. Mm -hmm. 
Oh no, e- even after that quite scathing conversation we've just had, Denny Lane's still massively underrated. Even Absolutely. if it's just a springboard for Paul to bounce ideas off, you know? And yeah. people don't give Denny Lane the credit he deserves on so many instrumental parts. Like, both he and Paul are, are on the keys in Morse Moose and the Grey Goose. Mm. You know, Denny played bass, Denny, Denny played lead guitar, rhythm guitar. He was so malleable and able to be wherever Paul needed him. And what are the two things that break up any friendship? What's the idiom? Money, money, money and, and women. And girls. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, well not, necessarily, not necessarily women. Money and partners, shall yes. we say. I'm yes. not going to exclude any, anyone <laughs> here, folks. But what came between John and Paul? Money and partners. Yeah. What came between... Well, also, Denny wanted to tour, but that's because he wanted more money. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, he was a mu- he was a musician, you know. He didn't know any other life, did he? He had to go now. Hey, hi-o! <laughs> and then, with that, we come to the end credits, and Paul plays "Let It Be," which I actually didn't didn't expect, and that was a nice little treat. Except for the fact that he uses the eighty nine ninety growl, which annoys me to no end. And we may well disagree again here because this is, I really, really love this version of Let It Be, just for the way that he attacks it. And again, yeah, there's, there's, there's times when he's not attacking it with the same voice he could have attacked it with years earlier. But I, I, just, I just love the energy in this version of Let It Be, and it's one of my favourite live versions of Let It Be. It's even got, though, even though we only get a minute a smile, or so. He? Yeah. yeah. He's, he's loving it. He's loving because let it be i don't think i mean obviously he did a few beatles songs in uh, in 76 but i'm pretty sure let it be wasn't one of them i don't think it was anyway no because uh, it, it, no. it was first debuted in the 79 tour right yeah so he's, he's kind of brought it back a little bit there he did it at live aid and that kind of went quite badly and i think he's just loving the fact that i am gonna go i'm gonna go on stage on a big tour and I am going to play this song. And he's, he's just like, he's loving that. And I think it's a really nice end to the documentary. It's, uh, it's, just, it's just a nice little reminder to end on that, actually, yeah, you know, this is the guy that wrote Let It Be. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad it's not Hey Jude at the end. Yes. Uh, I'd have probably loved it at the time if it was Hey Jude. But looking back on it now with every damn version we've had of it, I'm glad that it's one of his other big Beatles classics that's at the end there. I'm honestly surprised he didn't re-record it for Yesterday, the movie. 
Yeah, interesting. And uh, that was uh, that was one where there was all that sort of uh, theory in advance about is is it at DePaul and Ringo appear in this? Are they going to be in it? And it sounds like that they they paid a hell of a lot of money to use those Beatles songs. That's the, that's one of the biggest things about that film is my God, it's actually it's actually got Beatles music in it at the end. In nowhere, boy, they don't even say the word Beatles for fear of legal action. <laughs> yeah. Which is a shame. I mean, that's that's a good film. I like it's that a film. very good film. It's yeah, I love the um, the the in spite of all the danger that they do on there. Coincidentally, though, uh, the original book it was based on, co-written by Jeffrey Giuliano. How oh, was it? Yeah. yeah, and I need the one of the reasons I want to get him back on is to go through how he may or may not have been screwed out of that. Right. Um, very interesting, potentially. Yeah, they did. They did use a um, a demo of Mother at the end, didn't they? one of the early takes of Mother as the end yes. credits. So I presume that was all official and authorised. It must, must have been. Yeah, but Mad Men wouldn't pay $250,000 to play Mother. No. <laughs> $250,000 to play Tomorrow Never Knows. That's one of my favourite trivia facts ever. Like... Who, who paid that? So in the um, AMC show Mad Men, in one of the episodes where they take LSD, okay, they play A Day in the Life in full in the middle of the episode, oh. and it cost them $250,000 for the privilege. Jesus. <laughs> On the crown, you sort of see occasionally there'll be something like Starman by Bowie, and you just th- it just sort of hits you as, my God, this is a big budget programme. If, if they've got the rights to that, that ain't, that ain't coming cheap. They need to cancel the crown and put all those resources into a 12-season Beatles show each season covers a year and an album. You keep the same cast. You actually cast 16, 17, 18 year olds in the roles. Yeah. And let's see what happens. But we are going to have to wait till Danny, James, Stella, until yeah, they've all gone. We're well, not going to be alive to see no, the Beatle Beatle project. Yeah. I mean, I, when the Yesterday film came out, I got asked a question on YouTube by a, a guy called Rami who watches my videos and he sort of said, do you think there'll be, um, do you think there'll be another biopic? And, and, and I did a video based on it afterwards, sort of what could be next in terms of like a Beatles biopic. And I could certainly see a John Lennon one. I could certainly see uh, something happening there. We, we've got Nowhere Boy covering his early life. Mm-hmm. And I could absolutely imagine Yoko wanting to authorise something covering the 70s like their their story like the john and yoko story and that could be quite a big budget thing a dramatized version of the u.s versus john lennon basically yeah something like that and and for paul you know you could have a story that's sort of dealing with how he coped with the breakup of the beatles and i think i think a perfect paul biopic would be how he went from being beetle paul to broken paul to being on a massive stage in 1976 filling out arenas. See, this is so similar to an idea I had for a, a McCartney script that I actually started writing at one point. It would start with the death of John. Yeah. And it's him going over the 70s in, in his mind. Okay. Unfortunately, though, that th- there is a movie called Two of Us with yes. uh, Jared Harris. It's yeah. complete hogwash in terms of historical inaccuracy. But in terms of capturing the feeling of what we wanted their final conversation to be yeah oh oh, it's outstanding it really is yeah and they smoke a joint in it as well i was like yeah go on (laughs) lads you cheeky boys go on (laughs) i heard Um, paul said sort of in theory he was he was kind of okay with that two of his movie he said 
the general, the gist. sort of very high level um, gist of what's going on is is pretty much there. I mean, obviously they couldn't have any uh, have had any knowledge of what conversations went on, and he, he realizes that he appreciates the fact he wasn't going to slag them off because he knew that they had to just sort of literally make that up. Mm. But he said, as a, as a high level concept, he said, you know, he, he was quite sort of complimentary about it. Maybe Paul will say the same thing about my Yellow Submarine remake slash sequel slash prequel. That would be... <laughs> I, 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 I hope he gets to see that on his desk for approval. <laughs> you know what? Let's wrap this up. Overall, is this documentary, put it there, is it essential? Is it a must-have purchase for a budding McCartney fan? Or is this the men love avenue of documentaries? It's, um, it's, it's a weird one for me to answer because I'm sort of... I'm completely wrapped up in it from the point of view of this was this is where I entered the story mm-hmm. as a fan. So it's uh, and I, I try and look at it objectively. And I think if you were to list, if you were to list everything that Paul McCartney's done in order of cultural importance, with um, you know Sergeant Pepper at the top, this is much closer to P.S. Love Me Do down at the bottom than it is to Sergeant Pepper. But I will always have a very, very special place for this documentary in my heart. I have watched this documentary way more times than I have watched any other documentary that exists on Earth. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and that, but that says a lot more about me than it says about this documentary, I think. I personally love it, but I am very wrapped up in it because of the time frame of when it came out. Certainly, if anybody sort of says, if, if I ever hear anybody say... Oh, flowers in the. I quite like flowers in the dirt. I've just started listening to that. Oh, you want to see this documentary? Then put it there about the making of it. I would certainly recommend it. I would never ever try and shy somebody away from it, uh, like I might do with with certain other things that he's been involved in. So I, I mean, I know it's not perfect. It's uh, it's got some cheesy fashions in it, but again, that's when it was made. <laughs> what what can we expect? It's got some. It's it's got these special effects that are very much of the time, but again, that's the time it was made. So I think. As a documentary of what fashions and TV special effects looked like in 1989 and of what he was about to become, because this is very much him entering the new phase of his career, embracing the Beatles. This is kind of the birth of that. So I think it's quite important in that respect for a Paul McCartney fan to be aware of this documentary. But I realise that there are it, it doesn't need to be at the top of anybody's list for a new fan of, you know, I, I, there's other things I'm going to guide you towards first before watching this. I totally agree with you there. I really can't say much different. The only thing I will say is if someone is reticent about trying to find the DVD copy or, or a VHS, or they mm-hmm. don't want to buy the big re-release, the truncated versions on YouTube, it's yeah. not very good, but no, I managed to get a three and a half hour podcast out of it, you know. Absolutely, like eighty to ninety percent of it is there on that. You know, if you can get hold of the full version, it's going to look a little bit cleaner, and you're going to get slightly more, slightly longer version of some songs. But generally, you've got most of the full thing there. Absolutely, Andrew. I believe we've come to the end, my friend. Thank wow. you so much for coming on, man. This is this has gone probably a lot better than you thought it would, eh? I think probably has anybody in history ever talked for three and a half hours about the Put It There documentary. I'm not sure that I'm not even sure that the production team who made the documentary spent that much time spent this long planning it. 
but no, it, it has been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me onto your show. As you said, it is the first time I've ever done anything like this. And uh, yeah, yeah, it, we, I think we got there. And But yeah, thank you for having me, definitely. Put it there if it weighs a ton, Andrew. Oh, there's no hair on a seagull's chest, Sam. Is it che- seagull's ch- chest or back? Chest. Oh, definitely that's such a chest. weird phrase. I, I, didn't, I, I didn't watch this documentary 50 times to <laughs> not know that it's no hair on a seagull's chest. I typed that into Google and uh, one of McCartney's half-sisters mentioned it in a, in a, in a blog post as well. All right. So it's definitely a legit Jim yeah. McCartneyism. Yeah, that sound, oh, good. I've never researched it to that length. <laughs> Andrew, how can people find your stuff, man? Uh, so on, uh, on YouTube, if you type in Andrew Dixon, that's D-I-X-O-N, and uh, that should come up with a picture of my ugly mug. And I think, there are, I think other Andrew Dixons are available on YouTube, but they're things like doctors and, and American football players or rugby players or something like that. So, yeah, Andrew Dixon, Google me. If you, if you put Andrew Dixon, Paul McCartney, that, that'll get you there, I'm sure. 100%. And folks, I don't just say this because he's a guest on my show. I'm saying this because I've really had fun going through all of his content. Please, links down below, they will all be there. Go check out Andrew's channel because it's just packed to the brim with the, the kind of Paul McCartney and Beatle content that I wish I could cover, but I can't. And thankfully, someone <laughs> else does. Thank you. Again, man, thank you so much for coming on this show. I'm so glad we, we were we were. T- to talk for so long because you are more than welcome to come back my friend so hopefully i'll be seeing you sooner rather rather than later yeah let's uh let's get a topic that uh that we can chew over and uh, that would be very good as long as it's not a single disc white album we should be all right Uh, that's too controversial is that it's the beatles white album shut Shut up (laughs) top 10 mccartney quotes possibly it's, yeah, I don't think he's ever repeated that one though, has he? That's that was a one-off, but it was a great one-off. He was actually frustrated. Like, but the best bit about that, he's having a dialogue in his own head, which is yeah. really funny. He's having an argument with with, with himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh. that was fun. It's like you know, he says, "I saw someone carrying a copy of Wildlife in California once, so someone must have liked it." <laughs> Everyone, you've been listening to another episode of Paul or Nothing. I'll be speaking with Andrew Dixon from the Andrew Dixon YouTube channel. And we have been discussing, for the best part of four hours, the Put It There documentary from 1989. If you want to drop me an email, let me know your thoughts on this album. Maybe you have access to the full copy somewhere and you could point us in the right direction. Maybe you were the guy that supplied the four TVs so that they could do all, all of the weird effects for this. If you have anything to say about this at all please drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com follow us on the twitter the instagram the youtube the the blog leave us a review on itunes and check out our patreon if you fancy throwing some money at my face down the internet every month thank you so much folks next episode should be possibly band on the run listen with sam one of the most overdue episodes in this show's history See you all very, very soon. Peace and love, peace and love. Play us out, Denny.
Well, everybody say tomorrow. Be-